Welcome everyone to our November 3rd uh, Board of Trustees meeting. It is the Finance Committee. And we will begin with a roll call. Trustee Blue. Here. Trustee Steen. Here. Trustee Fox. Here. Trustee Friedman. He is here. We were speaking with him already. And Trustee Splendoria. Here. We have a quorum. Thank you. Thank you so much. Now, before we get into the business of the day, I would like to acknowledge a tragic occurrence that happened today. In case you haven't seen the news, Alameda County Supervisor Wilmer Chan passed today while walking her dog. She was hit by a car and did not survive. So I'd like to ask everyone to hold a moment of silence in her honor. Thank you all. The first item on our agenda tonight is the approval of the minutes from the October 6th meeting. Are there any corrections to the minutes or are we ready to make a motion for approval? So moved. I second. I'll give Louisa, you get the motion. <laughs> Thank you. Rana, can we get a roll call vote? All right, moved by Trustee Blue, seconded by Trustee Friedman to approve the minutes. Um, Trustee Blue. Aye. Trustee Steve. Aye. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. And Trustee Splendoria. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. Now we will move on to section B of our agenda, which is our chief financial officer's report. It will be given by our chief financial officer, Kim Miranda. Thank you. Can everyone see my screen? We can. All right, so I'll start with the volume highlights here. Um, if you look at our discharges, we were off 3.7%. Um, that's pretty close to pre-COVID levels, um, which is going in the right direction. As you can see, we were off 5.1% year to date. So this is getting closer to where we need to be pre-COVID. Um, but what's really special about this month is the fact that our acute length of stay is right on budget. That's below where we are year to date at 5.6, so 5.5. However, if you look at our case mix index, that's the CMI here, this measures the severity of illness and generally speaking would indicate you would need a longer length of stay to care for people. It actually went up 5.2%. So what this is telling us is that we are making some good strides in our performance improvement to get our length of stay down. So our opportunity days measured by the case mix index are lower in the month of September than they've been in quite some time. On the outpatient side, um, we've been we trended a little the wrong direction. If you look across the board here, these variances are bigger than the year to date, meaning that we didn't make headways headway to get back to pre-COVID levels. 
this service mix continues to be problematic for us. Our ED visits are quite a bit behind and so are our surgeries, although inpatient surgeries were, were good this month. This month. The other bright spot here is deliveries or 26.9% um, ahead of budget, 28 in the month and year to date too at 75 over budget. So that's a, a definitely a bright spot for us. In the skilled nursing area, our daily census is off uh, quite a bit this month compared to where you know we've been. Um, basically, uh, the COVID isolation requirements and complex patients are making it uh, difficult to get up to full um, to full census. Uh, we also have some other issues going on at Park Bridge. We're working on the roof. We also had a COVID um, breakout that uh, prevented some admissions. South Shore had a water leak. We ended up closing three beds. And of course, the Alameda seismic work is continuing uh, in September, which closed two beds, although it did reopen on October 27th. So that was great news. So lots going on uh, in the skilled nursing area. Clinic visits were up 10%, which is uh, ironic in that last month we were off 10%. So we've kind of made up for last month and we're just ahead of budget year to date. Uh, so that's the uh, highlights of the volumes. Here is the financial statements. Um, we, we had a loss of uh, about 841 here, which is 2.6 million below budget, but pretty close to um, a break even. Year to date, we're actually at a net income of nearly 2 million, although it is uh, below budget by the 4.8. EBITDA, which is earnings before interest depreciation and amortization, um, pretty much at break even for the month, we're 2.8 um, behind our budget. And year to date at 4.2, it is still 5.4. Um, below budget. So this is the uh, gross and net revenue slide here. Uh, gross patient service revenue, not that far off. In total, we're within a percent, both in the month and year to date. The mix has changed a bit here and there, um, but actually pretty close to uh, what we had budgeted, pre, which was pre-COVID. Our deductions, um, we're at 16.9, which is better than the current month bed budget, better than actual and year-to-date budget. And what we've done there is we've done we've used the zero balance accounts to uh, calculate a percent collection, and the ZBAs continue to improve, meaning we're collecting more than we had been trending. So we're seeing the positive pickup in this collection ratio. Um, I expect that uh, this should continue um, and improve even slightly ahead of uh, where we budgeted this year. On the operating revenue side, um, the, the shining light goes to the retail pharmacy. They're actually 700,000 above budget for the month and they're 1.5 million above budget for the year. Uh, there's a little offset going on in the timing of grants in the current month, making this uh, come in half a million over mm -hmm. budget. 
Also worthy to note uh, the scripts that are driving this in the retail pharmacy, aromatology and oral meds. These are more expensive drugs and they do have a higher margin for us. Uh, Kim, can I just hold on for a second? Alan has his hand up and you may not be able to see that. Oh, I did not see. He's in the corner of my screen. I'm sorry. Trustee Fox. Hi, uh, thanks. Um, you're mentioning the retail pharmacy. Is that a pharmacy that's retail in the sense that it's open for the public to come in and out? Yes, it's at, it's at Highland. It is our own retail pharmacy versus like a contract pharmacy. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, I'm wondering who the customers are. Is it the, are, are physicians writing scripts to their patients and they're coming in and filling them? That is the majority. Yes. And, uh, does anybody in the neighborhood come and get scripts filled there? Or can they, or, cause prescription, I think outpatient prescriptions are pretty profitable business. And I'm wondering if we get any, any non- you know, non-internal business or if we want to get any non-internal business? Uh, I expect most of it is internal. Uh, Highland is not the easiest place to park and get into and all yeah. of that. I don't know if anyone else on the call has any additional feedback. Um, Trustee Fox, I think most is internal. I think as patients leave our ED or urgent care, which is kind of contiguous with our pharmacy, they tend to maybe walk up there and get their medications filled. Um, same in our outpatient setting, they can walk over and get them filled. So I think it's our own patients accessing our own medical staff that go there. But certainly, um, if, if there's neighbors or others who wanted to access it and, and purchase their meds there, they could. Okay. I know that uh, pharmacy does try to have them ready for patients and and and, uh, and try to encourage folks to use use our um, pharmacy. Uh, there's a really specific drugs here that 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 do drive that margin, and those are you know coming from those specialty clinics. How about employees? If you know if an employee's got a couple of prescriptions to fill or refill, say, rather than stopping at Walgreens on the way home or something, could they get them refilled at that pharmacy? They could. In fact, it would be nice to even see uh, more of our employees using our facilities, and uh, certainly they could use our pharmacy as well. Okay, because I know that, you know, these pocket pharmacies that uh, the, that the big chains open up that you know they're not selling tennis balls and stuff, but they're they're making money, uh, and they're making money on the scripts. That's where they make their money. I love the way you think, Trustee Fox, especially as we incentivize mem uh, staff coming into our <clears throat> health system for their own care and for the care of their families. What better way than to get your prescriptions filled while at work? My next slide here is the operating expense slide. Um, there's just a couple variances no need to work uh, to, to talk about, of course, labor costs, which is the next slide. Um, but materials and supplies are quite a bit over 21%, 1 1.6 in the month, and also for the year. 
And that is being driven, of course, by the fact that we have to purchase those pharmaceuticals to sell in the retail pharmacies. So that's a big piece of it. And then, although we did budget for quite a bit of PP&E, I think we maybe underestimated the amount of uh, costs associated with, uh, with uh, continuing um, having the PPE available for staff. And then, of course, the lab reagents as well. And going down here, facilities, that's really just timing differences for utilities. And, you know, that it's it's difficult to, to hit that um, right in any given month, but we should be pretty close for the year. And it, uh, general and administrative had a negative variance, and that was due to some uh, timing of claims under our self-funded hospital liability insurance. This should level out during the year. Uh, Trustee Fox, do you have another question? Yeah, no, I really didn't. I do have a question, so I may as well ask it. I forgot to lower my hand, but on the on the labor, um, it looks like our FTEs are pretty close to budget. I think, and uh, so I'm, but we're we're well over budget on registry. So what what's the overall productivity picture? So. Um, uh... This is the labor slide, and uh, yes, we are net 20 FTE over, but what's driving this is the fact that we have a vacancy of 133 employed physicians, and the mix of those patient, those uh, people I am still doing some research on, but overall, even though the, we have the big vacancy of the 133. The overall average rate is higher than budget. And then for registry, we've used 153 to fill the 133 vacant plus some. And these are at a substantially higher rate. And I have a slide here to show this in just a minute. Okay, but when you, when you look at our total FTEs um, versus volume, uh, are we at 100% productivity or close to it? I know there's a rate variance. I'm just yeah. So productivity is yeah. Our productivity is pretty close to 100%. Yeah. Uh, and in all honesty, Trustee Fox, we're still trying to establish um, labor standards that are accurate. So what what we've done this year with our um, with our FTE or work committee, we call it, is because we can't boil the ocean all at once, what we decided to do is as someone puts in a request, if they are either over or under by more than four points, we're looking at their staffing plan and establishing a new labor target so that next year we'll actually have a valid, um, um, I guess, a valid um, um, position to be able to say we're at 100% or not at 100%. I can tell you overall we are, but I also know that the standard deviation in our labor standards is huge. Okay, thank you. Trustee Fox, one last comment. Our productivity as measured by the way we're measuring our labor standards, which is evolving, we were at 100.3% productivity. Looks like Trustee Blue has a question. Yeah, um, in terms of registry use, 
Where is the majority of it being used? Is it mainly at Highland or is it spread across? Because I know at San Leandro, they haven't had to use registry. Yeah, it's Trustee this is Mark. Mm -hmm. It's spread, but it's mainly at Highland and mainly in the nursing areas. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then we also had a negative variance with physicians too. And this is both uh, rate and volume variance. We have had more FTE um, and we also increased our call rates. Uh, and year to date, since they're bigger variances, they're pretty much the same in the month. I laid them out here, uh, emergency, anesthesia, cardiology and ortho, ortho and anesthesia relate to trying to get more cases in the, in the OR. Those are offset by a employee benefit variance of 800,000 in the month. And that's uh, due to lower uh, claims in our self-insured health plan. And of course, you know, when you have fewer employed staff, you have less people using the health plan and lower costs. Um, so that's, that's what we're seeing there. I've got another slide, a couple more slides on labor. Any questions? I keep going here. So here's the trending. This is FTEs versus adjusted patient days. Um, typically what we like to see is staff to adjust to the volumes. Um, so COVID has definitely impacted that right in the middle of my slide. You can see how our volumes dropped off. You can see how our paid FTEs increased during this period of time. And that is because of the 12 week COVID leave policy we put in place. So we, we eliminated this vacancy that we typically run at. And then we gave those people paid leave, putting us up, you know, right around budget, even though our volumes were down. And then uh, now our paid FTEs have leveled off. Um, they kind of dropped here and leveled off since that leave of absence is, is no, no longer being granted at that 12 week level and we're much closer to budget, which was planned. We did a lot of work um, during the budget process to not allow this big um, vacancy cushion, if you will. Uh, and we're seeing that we are running fairly close. This next slide is the cost uh, slide uh, with nursing and all others. So we broke it out. Otherwise it wouldn't really have explained the variance. So this side over here is nurses. This side here is all other employees. The um, employed is this um, the orange line. And you can see for nurses, it is actually more expensive to hire registry. And you can also see how registry costs have shot up. There's that blue line jumping way up and it's definitely outpacing our employed. And then over on the other side here, it's everyone else. And you can see um, that our staff are, you know, just kind of their salaries have been kind of going up. And then um, they have jumped up this last year and the registry costs have actually flattened, but have not gone back to the pre 2020 level. So this peak here was caused by our strike so our costs went way up to cover for the strike, but they did not come back down to what they were pre-strike. So we're seeing a big increase in registry rates in both areas. 
Any questions there? I have a question about the vacancy rate being, your FTE usage being pretty flat and the budget leveling out pretty well in the last slide. And uh, imagining that we just approved a whole new uh, contract for registry usage. How are we supposed to have space to attract new staff that isn't registry if we aren't budgeting for that? Well, we budget for all labor, whether it's registry FTE or employed FTEs. So this is everybody, registry and FTEs, it's all in here. Oh, um, we, I will say that typically every budget year, everyone says they're gonna hire regular employees with, uh, for their budget. And then what happens is we don't hire as many as we think and we use more registry. And so that's part of why we've got a big registry variance. Although, as you saw on the last slide, our rates are way up. So this Trustee is all in. And, and Trustee Esteen, excuse me, Kim. Um, we don't take our staff postings down when we hire or bring in registry. They stay up and we continue to fill those positions. And then we get rid of registry um, either before or when their contract comes due, depending on when we need what we need. So over the course of the year, you know, we're always looking to try to divest, if you will, from um, registry and continue to add our staff. Thank you. Okay, so then I'm moving to the balance sheet. A um, couple things to point out. Our days in AR did go up and uh, we're trying to get this down to 50 in April. So this is the wrong direction. And I have a slide next to show you a little more about that. Uh, good news here on AP, our percent over 60 dropped to 2.9. You may recall that we did a big project to apply credits to um, invoices. And when we did that, our um, over 60 went up last month to 6.5. We've completed the project and now we're back to a more normal state. Um, our days are low because we've got plenty of room on the line of credit. So we're paying everything in according to our cycle. Um, the net position did deteriorate because of our net loss um, so far this year. Uh, the line of credit did go up. This isn't um, concerning at all. It relates to timing of when we uh, drew down funds from the county and paid vendors. And also we had a large IGT um, that we needed to, to make for um, the FY20 GPP. So IGT is an intergovernment transfer. So basically we need to put up money so that we can get the match from the feds and then we get it back. So we had to put it up and that caused our line of credit to go up. Here's the uh, AR days graph. It's pretty flat, but it, you know, trending a little bit up. What's happening here is uh, uh, we had a little less cash in August, and I'll show you the cash in just a minute. And then um, we're having some issues in the denials area uh, with staffing. So um, we're really working on trying to stabilize this and, and um, working with 
here on under the best initiative to optimize staffing and uh, and focus to to get back uh, on track. It's not a it's not a horrible increase, but we were expecting it to go down. Here's the cash slide. Cash looks uh, looks great in um, September. However, in Epic, that's a lower number. You can see it was 50 million. We were 52, 59. Um, so this wasn't a great um, Epic collection month. What drove it was behavioral health. We got 10.6 million from Alameda County, and that reflected invoices that are part of the normal process. But in addition to that. We got the retro payment going all the way back from July 1st on our FY21 contract. So just to remind everybody, the way this works is we got to get our costs and vault and stats together. We sit down with the county and we negotiate a rate in around December, January, and then we have to reprocess all the billing going back to July at the higher at the new rates, basically. So that was done and paid by the county in the current month. So you can see the 10.6 million there. Overall, if you look at the annualized amount, we're actually about 17 million ahead of last year. So we're looking okay overall. Here is the graphic of the NNB or our line of credit forecast. Um, the blue line is our actual, and then the, across this dotted line here becomes the forecast. Uh, and of course, the red line is those recoupments that we do not know when they will be due. Um, this is consistent with last month. There really are no changes. The only comment I made here is that we've got in this blue line 32.4 million of cash for capital, and we've only spent 3.7. So we're running a little bit behind our targeted cash flow. Here's the graph that just pulls out the material items that you know tend to drive those peaks and valleys in the line of credit um, slide. Um, this was actually a request of the county that I've just continued in here so that you can kind of correlate the line of credit with these large um, supplemental funding amounts. And then I always want to point out these looming repayments that we have coming up. Um, and uh, I, I have a little news on the FY12. Um, I think we're going to end up paying the remaining balance, uh, which is the dish portion. And I don't know if all of you remember this. We made the safety net care pool. Um, payment in July, and then we had talked to the state about delaying any other payments, but um, we're getting some additional funding that will allow us to make the final payment for that year, and I think we'll be doing that soon. I'll know more um, soon. I, we just got the email. Um, James and I got it yesterday, so um, more to come. So that is my presentation. Any other questions? Oh, wait, I, I do. Hang on. Sorry. Sure. <laughs> there, I raised my hand. Okay. Um, yeah, I had a, a couple of questions. So based on the data that we now have, um, and in particular with the nursing staffing, is anyone 
thinking about what we could do internally to deal with that, whether it's figuring out their sign-on bonuses. I read some articles. Some hospitals are offering $50,000. And I'm not saying we offer $50,000, right? Including registries. But, you know, 2000 I don't think is high enough. But I'm just throwing that out. And then also, if we hear anything from the nursing staff of what they think should happen. I'll just comment real quick on the fact that you can see that the rate increase has been happening. I mean, if you look at the, mm-hmm. the wages, they have been going up. And I know Human Resources uh, Committee uh, has been working on a retention plan. I yeah. don't know if anyone else wants to speak to that. No, yeah. that's why I raised it, because I chair the committee. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course. <laughs> Thank Sorry, you for Trustee the- Blue. <laughs> Thank-, Thank you for the question, Trustee Blue. I think much of the work and discussion we've had with your HR committee and much of the discussion internally, we're coming up with a, a whole bunch of potential options to be able to retain and recruit nurses. And I'm, I'm optimistic about that. Some of them will take a little while to implement. And to your other part of your question, yes, I've, I've gotten, I don't know, one or two or three, I'm not sure how many suggestions from our nursing staff, which I have forwarded to um, our HR department for consideration in that whole menu of stuff that we're starting to develop. So um, a lot more to come. And I also think that, you know, it'll be helpful to get a a permanent chief nursing officer in place to help us um, with some new ideas around nursing recruitment and retention. And, um, Mark, is there anything, any discussions that have been happening about increasing the the SAN rate? Is that, you know, the per diem rate for our staff? um, I haven't heard of any discussion around increasing the rate. I have requested to our nursing leaders and others, frankly, that we utilize SANs more. You know, much Mm -hmm. of the time, at least when when I was leading nursing, 25% of our total staff was part-time or SAN. So we're trying to increase that number across the board to give us more flexibility. But have we spoken about their rate? No, not mm-hmm. that I'm aware of, unless Lauren is aware of something. No, that we have not discussed increasing their rate. They have a 25% differential on top of the base rate. Uh, is that rate with the differential still cheaper than registry? Mm, good question. Um, uh, RN2, I'm just thinking right now we're doing crisis registry staffing. So the answer would be um, the, the um, per diems or the SANS, what we call them, um, would be cheaper than the crisis staffing rates. But the crisis staffing rates are part of the issue of, you know, the, there's not a lot of... Um, registry out in the market and so we're competing okay well there'll be a lot for me and lorna to talk about our next hr committee yeah it still sounds like it's cost effective to bring in permanent staff i see we have another hand up from trustee splendorio um yeah maybe um i'm i'm surprised we didn't get a report 
uh, at the last full board meeting, I recall in discussion regarding a, a contract approval for a registry. I don't remember the name of it. I'm looking here, but the, part of the motion was that we charged uh, the executive team and the HR committee to come up with some incentives. Um, I take it that hasn't really been started yet, or maybe this is a time for progress report, or, or just hasn't started yet. We presented that last week in the HR committee, um, Trustee Splendorio, um, some ideas that we're, we're actually putting out to price for market. Great, thank you. I just wanted to see if it got, if it got started. Thank you for holding us accountable, Trustee Splendorio. Now we'll hear uh, item B2 of our agenda, which is our Chief Operating Officer's report. It's exciting, it's mental health services. I'm ready for this. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Trustee Esteen. And I'm really pleased to announce our presenters tonight. Um, first, Patty Espeseth, our new CAO for mental health services, in particular at John George. Um, um, Dr. Tanuz Siddhartha, who is Patty's partner as the chair of psychiatry and leader at John George. And Michael McGlidas is with us as well, who's working out of our revenue um, cycle, working on the revenue cycle um, and, and many other processes um, at John George within our mental health services to make things more efficient. So the three of them got a bit and piece of, of this total presentation. So Patty, I think I turn it over to you to lead us off here. Be great. And, and by the way, why Patty's pulling it up, the presentation is really three parts. One, how we're doing an IOP, two, um, John George, and then three, Michael's area of the revenue cycle and the, and the financial issues. Patty? Okay, great. Michael's pulling that up for me just in case I uh, have technical difficulties. <laughs> so um, we can go to the first slide. The next slide. So I, I just, I'm wanting you all to know that I am very excited about being here. Um, I've been um, working with the seriously mentally ill for the last 25 years, mostly in acute inpatient um, settings and also running some uh, partial and IOP programs. And my, um, my passion is really to serve the persons with mental illness and, and their loved ones. I've been hosting a NAMI meeting for the last 25 years. And uh, that's the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And it's, it's so important to me that patients and their loved ones um, have a good experience. Um, there's just, there's so much stigma in our world still to this day. And if we don't, you know, when we're the, the people giving the care, if we don't know how to convey that we really care and really wanna make a difference, then, you know, what are we doing here? So I'm I'm super happy to, to be here at, at, um, at John George. I'm also lived in Oakland for the last hundred years and or so. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really happy to be part, to be working in this community again. And also um, just to let you know, we also just brought on uh, Matt Wiley who's also very ex experienced in um, acute behavioral health settings as an interim. So, um, and then Michael, who you'll meet at the end here is just a, a great guy, really an expert in let's, you know, let's go after the dollars and figure that out and clean all that up. So um, we can move to the next slide. 
Um, so, so I just, I wanted to say first, I feel like sometimes, um, you know, there's all these assumptions that get made about behavioral health and psych units. And, and I wanted to share with you about, um, uh, two things that we're really going to work on here in John George that we're already working on. The first is, is reducing assaults. Um, and hand in hand with that is, um, stabilizing staffing. So, um, it, and uh, some other initiatives I'll tell you about how to, how we'll get it done. So, but if you check out, check out John George. So last year we had, um, um, last fiscal year, we had 13 assaults that um, resulted in injury. And just to, to put that in perspective, so you figure we've got, we've got about 100 patients in the house every day, right? Because so we have three 23 bed um, units, and then we have our psych emergency, where we may have, you know, 30 people coming through every day. So you figure you got 100 patients, there's about 20 of them that are waiting for long-term placement at Villa or one of the other crisis reses. So, so that, that contingent can be a little bit more stable. And then maybe you have, you know, 10 people discharging from the units. But the great majority, so you could say you have 70 people in the house each every day that are, are very acute and, and that really you know, need to be in the settings that we can keep them safe while they heal. Um, so, and if you compare us to the national um, race, this is out of the NDNQI database um, from several hundred psych facilities. Um, we we had just we had 0 0.4 um, injurious assaults per patient days compared to the national average, which is almost double that. So, I think that's kind of surprising and and some you know, good news for us, although we'd, I'd rather have no injurious assaults. And then also sometimes people people get hung up on the past and think, oh, you know, people commit suicide in that hospital, but ac actually we've had no suicides in this hospital in over 10 years. And the, the Joint Commission resource reports about 20 nationwide last year, but, you know, I, you know, I know a handful of hospitals in the Bay Area that have had suicides on their units in the last 10 years. So, um, we're keeping people safe. Um, next slide. Um, so just to, to talk about staffing, because the the devil is really in the details and going after this. And you've probably been you're probably sick about hearing staffing issues for years. But I'm I'm super hopeful that we can stabilize this. And you know the, the way to go about it is is all the things you see on this list. And you you use your position control. Uh, you make sure that you're you know posting and the way we need to with the union first and then posting posting internally and or externally depending on the positions that and we're, we're using multidisciplinary hiring teams here as well so that um that the the the, the staff has has a sense that you know people aren't just just suddenly appearing but people are participating in that process of looking for talent and bringing people in and also um just the basic things of getting on top of posting the schedule in, in advance and this, this is like the first major initiative um, for Matt Wiley and myself to make sure we're really on top of all of this stuff. Um, and, you know, really checking our services needed pools, making sure we can do the math in advance and know, you know, know that we're going to have X amount of call offs, et cetera. And let's make sure we've got enough people in the pool that we're using regularly, you know, having those relationships with that want to come in and work. Um, and, and also there's the, you know, holding people accountable um you know really chasing the issues where, where people are frequently calling off more than than what's allowed and um you know where their pattern staffing aren't meeting the minimum um uh signing for 
shifts coverage. So, um, and then currently we are, um, we are on boarding travelers while we hire. We actually, today we brought on um, three of our own new RNs, yay. And we also um, added three um, traveler RNs. And, and that that's just, a, that's a stopgap that are, as you know, Mark Kratzky was talking about that we're not expecting them to fill positions. It's just so we can make sure that we're, you know, safe with the holiday system coming up. Um, next slide. Um, and then this, this, I really get excited about this because, um, in every, every other, um, locked acute environment that I've worked in, what's really fun is to come in and find the staff that are, that are already really good at what they do. So this is, um, this is about how to go upstream in, um, making the milieu as safe as it can be. So these are straight out of joint commission resource. These are the most, um, out of, you know, overview of, of the um, of the literature, these are the things that you do that um, have been proven effective to make the milieu really safe and, and bring assaults down. And kind of a, a fun thing that we're doing is our, um, we've, we've added, um, we've grown our um, uh, violence reduction committee and we've ad added in more of, um, more line staff and more managers. And there's a team of us that's right now about 20 people they're all going out uh, onto the floors and uh, all of us have identified people that we know are already really good at connecting with patients, know how to deescalate and how to give patients choice and, you know, empower patients to, to take part in having their own personal control. So we're starting at, the, at that level of the people on the floors, going to them, interviewing them about how do you guys do it? Thanks for being a staff star. We love it. You know, um, and that, that's going to be the foundation for everything that we um, do over the next six months related to this goal. And next slide, please. Um, the other thing about the um, wanting to improve employee engagement, you know, I just want to acknowledge for the the staff that work um, both at John George and in our outpatient services, our outpatient psych services. You know, they've been through a lot of change. It's it's hard to get a new boss and get a new boss. So. I'm hoping to stay for a long time if you guys will have me, but I think that there, we need to do some work around just um, connecting and um, uh, acknowledging staff in real time for the good work they're doing, uh, modeling uh, leadership by being out there rounding, um, talking with patients. Um, one thing that's really fun is just asking the patient, hey, who helped, who helped you today? Who, you know, who do you feel like cared about you or um, did something nice for you? And then we're working on the the other committee that I'm really want to see successful. And actually, we've decided to incorporate this as part of our um, our safety um, across across the whole organization. Not um, which is um, engaging everyone in how how we're going to do celebrations and recognitions. Um, um, so we have a, a whole crew of people working on that. And next slide. Um, so a little bit about our um, intensive outpatient um, program. So as you all know better than I do, by the way, I'm only in my third, I've just finished my 90 days. So I'm, I made it through the first part and I'm still here. So that's good. But anyway, we're, um, we're, we're really after looking at both the, the, the um, programs at both Highland and Fairmont, um, we really looked at all these different, the, you know, we had two different groups come in and assess what was going on. 
And I, I know that, in, you know, that you'd heard a different message about, you know, can we really make these programs um, financially viable? And, and the answer is, is yes, we can. And we really what we need to do is grow the IOP and re reinstitute a partial hospitalization program, which essentially it means a more intensive level of service. It's like five days a week, four groups a day so that you can step down from inpatient or avoid getting hospitalized. And then, and then also the last one on the list there is just a um, develop an outpatient wellness. So that's all. That's all in the thinking about it, dreaming it. Um, it's not a reality yet. But if you'll pop to the next slide. Um, so um, the, these are just the, the elements related to what's different now that will show that we'll be able to go forward and. Um, you know, cover cover our costs and and also, you know, put some money um, back into the pool, um, and that's just it's it's looking at um, reducing the length of stay so we can serve more people and also so we can align ourselves with the community standard of practice, which is, you know, people generally would come to partial for two weeks to a month and then they'd be in the IOP the step down, which is you know three groups a day, one two or three days a week, um, for more like three months, not for years and years. So. We're looking at that for all of our patients who are clinically able to step down to a lower of care. Um, also, we've already implemented what we need to do in our documentation to use scales to prove medical necessity for those patients who need to be in the program. Um, and so that, you know, CMS will reimburse us based on what they see in our documentation. Um, also, we're working on increasing access for both the PHP and, and IOP in terms of how we coordinate with the community and also with um, John George really focusing on referral development because we'll need to have you know more referrals coming in to account for um, uh, the length of stay and then also we're we're um, really looking forward to getting a um, filling that position um, in at Highland um, of the of a, a manager to run that program as well so so the, the message is one of we're going to grow these services. And you know, I know we can do it. And actually, a little caveat: back in 1998, I helped start the um, the partial hospitalization IOP programs. I brought them to this campus um, with a another organization. So, so for me, it's it's exciting because I was there when it started, <laughs> and I'm you know I feel very confident that we can we can uh, we can fly this airplane. <laughs> so um, let's see. Next slide. Um, so, like I said, we're going to re we actually have just started um, um, having our first um, patients in the partial hospital, adding that that fourth group. And um, because we're 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 looking at the um, those percentages of patients that are many 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 patients, the Medicare Medi-Cal patients at John George, we're um, um, creating a space to be able to bring some of those folks in who are a little more acute. Than, than people who've been in the program um, in recent years. And also it's, it's in the same area as the IOP, so it's an opportunity because the current staff are already there at this point. Um, if you'll go to the next slide. Um, so this is just to, to kind of explain the difference between what's, what's ambulatory, what the, our substance abuse disorder and our mild to moderate group versus the, the focus at, at John George and at the Fairmont and Highland clinics. So we're continuing IOP, we're adding PHP for the seriously mentally ill. 
and then again that's kind of a that's a dream and a and a thought the specialty mental health wellness um, for the severely mentally ill and as part of that we're really hoping we can partner with um, behavioral health care services to um, to make that um, a reality and then uh, and and then for the the uh, the people who are categorized as as mild to moderate um, with uh, mental illnesses that um, that'll be covered in our primary care um, uh, clinics and our substance use, substance use disorder services. And also the, the psychology training clinic will continue. So one next slide, please. Can I just ask a question about that slide sure. uh, before we leave it? So it looks like, uh, did, did I hear you say you want to partner with the county for the specialty mental health clinics? It's a it's a it's a conversation, um, and uh, and a and a hope to be able to do that. Um, um, we're in in addition. We want to um, run our own clinic, but um, we'd like to be able to partner with the county when we look at expanding. How do we serve that huge medical population? You know, and that could be um, people coming down from. Uh, you know, some of the, some capturing some people on our campus up here, um, but we need to have a partnership with um, with the county in order to do that, to be able to build Medi-Cal. Yeah. Is there any idea what the timing of that could potentially be? Well, we're talking about it now, and um, the answer is I don't know. I would like it to be sooner rather than later, but I know these these things are not fast. Uh, they they don't happen quickly. But okay. I think, yeah, I think there's a lot of desire to, to make something work. So that's what I'm understanding as I come into this situation. Right. Yeah, I see we have another hand from Trustee Fox. Um, my memory is this goes back a few years, but that Medi-Cal does not cover partial hospitalization. Is that still the case? That's that's correct. It's I mean, it, it's Medicare, Medi-Cal, but it's Medicare is the primary payer for PHP-IOP. So if somebody is Medi-Cal only, uh, they're not eligible for that program. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So uh, I would imagine that the majority of our patients are Medi-Cal. Is that correct? At, um, at, at John George? Yeah, but the but of course this this program has you know run a healthy census of you know twenty plus at one campus and fifty five at the other campus um, with that that um, Medicare population because you know as you know the many people with severe mental illness um, qualified for Medicare because of their illness not not okay. their age so it really is that seriously okay. mentally ill population disabled population yes okay thank you. Okay. Thank you, Trustee Fox. I see Trustee Bouquet has a hand up. Thank you, Madam Chair. And uh, thank you for that presentation, Ms. Hespethus. So uh, quick, uh, this is context, and I know you've only been here, uh, you know, less than 90 days, and uh, we have a new administration, uh, and, and many of the trustees weren't here for the prior discussion. But, you know, 18 to 36 months ago, there was a long discussion about the dissolution of the IOP in our system. So this is a sort of a complete reversal of prior positioning on it. And I, uh, it's, it's a big ask, uh, so I don't know if you can do a short version. Can you walk us through how we've come completely different from where 
the prior administration was having a viewpoint on on this. It's it can be a little bit confusing for the audience who maybe have been following this particular issue. And again, for those who attended meetings 18 to 24 months ago, especially in the Equality Committee, there were big discussions about the dissolution of the IOP. So you can imagine this can be a little bit uh, offsetting. Oh, oh my God, this is completely different than a prior position. So thank you for that. Yeah, there there are a couple of things, and and Mark, or anyone else, feel free to jump in as well. But I think what's when we got the the recent reports back that really showed the analysis of everything, what we figured out is if we do the billing correctly, we can we can make money on this, and if we um, if we do what we need to do in our documentation, we can protect the medical necessity and the the needed length of stay, and so um, so it's. It's it's really looking at the 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 volume is there if we if we focus on referral development and bringing people in, and we so it's it's just a perspective of knowing that it can be done, especially if we build correctly and we offer add back in the PHP level of service, which is is a better balance. But also there's just a lot of community you know, goodwill and support for let's not cut services to the severely mentally ill if we can make it work. Um, and, I, and then let's do that. Um, Justine Bouquet, just, just a couple other comments. One, we know that um, it was most helpful to get an expert consultant to come in and take a look at the program. We discovered that we're billing about a third of the revenue we should be, number one. Um, number two, we found out many of the programmatic um, issues that Patty has mentioned that was maybe holding our program back a little. Um, we've got really, really good staff who really believe that um, this can work as well. Um, plus the Highland IOP program, um, by way of this fear of it possibly closing, I believe the volume just started to dwindle a little at Highland. And um, we know we can bring it back. That volume has been there before. Um, and by way of our consultants, we know exactly the amount of volume we have to have, exactly the length of stay we need to have, exactly the, the number of groups we need to have. So when you put it all together, um, we penciled out pro formas about whether we could do this financially, and the answer was yes. So I don't know if that, that much detail was um, in the thinking of the prior administration, but we went through a great deal of detail around this. I appreciate the analysis, Mr. Fratsky, and, and to this administration on this, because I, uh, I'm just gonna say I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Trustee Blue. Yes, thank you for the report. Um, So I had a couple of questions. Uh, The IOP staff, they were some of the first staff that uh, I met with because I got a call when I first got on the board last year. Um, So, and they had told me back then that there really was an opportunity to expand the program. So did we actually expand the program or are we just moving our patients to John George and Highland. 
where we have an IOP there now. We are beginning to expand the program. We're right. not moving our patients back to John George, not at all. We're, okay. we're yeah, and the plan is to grow the program and, and hopefully grow the service line too, to be able to have our own clinic and our own, some kind of wellness um, model as well. So. Do you have any um, estimates of how many uh, patients we'd be able to take in? Because it's roughly around 200 within the IOP. Right, but if, if when we change the length of stay and, and look at look at all that, then it, we could, you know, see 2,000 people. Wow. You know, so if you're, if people are staying, you know, uh, three to four months. So, um, uh, you know, so we could, and also if we end up doing a wellness, you, you create a model where people don't have to, um, we you remove the access barriers so that they're, they're allowed to just show up or drop in or walk down the hill from PES. So you can, you can, you know, sometimes capture people that way by making it, make it super easy for them to, to check it out and get there. Mm-hmm. And do you have an do you have an estimate of how many staff you will need once everything is up and running, or do you have an estimate as you open up? Not yet. We can we, we can do the math on that, but we we need to okay. figure out what's the volume going to be. We'll probably start small uh-huh. first and build from there uh, uh-huh. before we can figure that piece out. Thank you. There, I do have a couple more slides <laughs> that, I, that I can do quickly if um, there are no more hands up here. I think Thank you for humoring our questions. This yeah. has been a hot button issue. I'm sure you knew. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thank you for the questions. So uh, ne- next slide. So, yeah, so this is just a little bit more about the this that, um, our, and this is all thinking it, dreaming. And by the way, I didn't dream of this or think, think of this. I want to give big credit to the um the staff that work at the in the um the currently now piece at both campuses because because they 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 care about their patients and they want to make sure their patients have the right level of care and so they they really help develop a, a gosh if we could build a program for step down what would it look like so that so um so the idea right now though is we have some space probable um at fairmont that's a, a good amount of space um, in the H building that could be a location, a possible location. Um, and, and the hope would be maybe, you know, who knows someday at Highland as well, but because there's space existing at Fairmont, we thought let's start there. So, um, and I said the other things before, I think there's, we got another slide here, right? So actually, um, this is the point where I, I get to pass the baton to, um, to, um, Dr. Siddhartha who I think you all have met. Thanks for, Dr. Siddhartha came in on his holiday. Thank you, Dr. Siddhartha. (laughs) Thank you, Patty. I'm glad to be here. Uh, Actually, this this is a brief comment on, uh, you know, we were talking about staffing uh, as uh, Patty shared that the main focus uh, is currently on, we we are really looking into decreasing the assaults. And the other thing is about staffing. And even in psychiatry, we have had, uh, significant problems with staffing through COVID. Actually, it was okay in the beginning, but what has really happened is that attrition has happened, and then those positions that are left vacant have been hard to fill. And especially uh, how in behavioral health in general and also in psychiatry, because so much of the outpatient uh, work can be delivered remotely via tele, there has been an explosion uh, in that space 
And so there has been, uh, you know, uh, transition for a lot of the doctors who are already, uh, who are already working in uh, getting better options within the tele space. So what has happened, the difficulty has been in filling positions in our psych emergency room and inpatient psychiatry. So that has been a challenge over the last, I would say about a year now. And during that period of time, we are essentially ending up with too many transitions of care, which uh, leads to obvious problems. So, uh, but we are working on it. I, you know, uh, the one of, so uh, currently Traditions Behavioral Health provides services in the um, in both those spaces. We are working with them. Currently, they have given us a notice actually of termination of contract effective February 21. But there's, there have been some conversations uh, after that, uh, which could lead to another agreement, which could ensure staffing uh, on those both on, the, on, the, on those uh, both sides. And then uh, we are looking at other options too. But the overall, I we you know it also has created an opportunity for us to kind of really think about the model of delivery of care, looking at how we schedule and staff. So. You know, everybody on this call. I think Pat, Patty and Mark and Dr. Tronopane, they're they're all been all been involved in this process. So, you know, uh, just to say that it's been a little bit of a challenge. It's a developing story, uh, but I think uh, we have uh, good attention on it. And over the next two three months, we should be in a better space. And uh, it is very important that we get that thing right because of you know the all this all the. Uh, efforts that we are engaging in, uh, in a way, the best initiatives, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, decreasing assaults, decreasing admin days, decreasing denied days, all those are quite uh, significantly related to having consistent staffing. That's, uh, that was the main thing I wanted to share today. And thank you, Patty. <laughs> Welcome. And we'll pass it on to um, Michael. Trustee Estini. Yeah, I'm very curious about the the staffing agency uh, terminating. Uh, so this was something that happened already in February of this year. No, uh, oh, oh my, oh, see that the year is wrong. I apologize. February 2022. Okay, so what we've already experienced this year will be exacerbated. Yes, yeah, if yeah, if we don't get it right. Yes, right. Okay, um, having worked in psych, I know that there's often a shortage of psychiatrists, but you know we do authorize contracts on this committee, and I'm curious what is what's the process that's happening right now so that we can recruit psychiatrists and also make sure um, that we can you know, do whatever it takes so that we don't have a loss of staffing. So we were engaged in a conversation, and Patty and Mark uh, and Dr. Kornemann, please feel free to chime in. Uh, we have been engaging in, uh, so there are two uh, psychiatry coverage across Alameda Health Systems is provided by EHS employed psychiatrists uh, and by Traditions Behavioral Health. And uh, we have, uh, uh, so there was this whole transition process happening in PES over the last year and a half. Uh, following an arbitration decision a year and a half, uh, two years ago, where all the staffing for PES now is supposed to be HS employed, and we are pretty close to get, you know, getting there. Uh, about a year ago, as I shared, the 
you know, the challenges with staffing and psychiatry on inpatient started happening and you know, on other services. And we started engaging with accreditation uh, behavioral health to kind of work on these solutions. And we did get some temporary solutions in place, but that did not last. And overall, the difficult thing that uh, they have faced and have been communicated to us and, you know, there's is essentially that the uh, inpatient staffing, uh, there are just very few takers to come into an acute hospital, right, at this point of time. Uh, lots of people who are already waiting on the f fences, uh, waiting on the sidelines for the COVID uh, thing to resolve. Uh, the, you know, the, there is not no underemployment per, uh, per se. I mean, you know, everybody is employed already. They, everybody has a job. Uh, the home prices in the area have increased 20% in the last year. So, I mean, imagine look other people moving into this area. So everybody who's been, who was here was already employed. Uh, currently, we are so uh, we were engaged in these conversations, and then uh, I, uh, there was a new contract which went into effect in March of this year. Following which, the problem challenges with staffing continued. So the uh, you were still engaging in conversations and trying to figure out a solution. And this uh, notice we got was just about two weeks ago. So currently, we are, you know, yeah, we are working on. We have had meetings. I guess the answer is that we are still, uh, you know, dis discussing and weighing our options, and we're, you know, looking at all for all possibilities. Thank you for that. <laughs> Does anybody else have any questions before we move on? Okay. Oops. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for having me on this evening. My name is Michael McGlitis. I uh, was hired earlier this year as the interim director for billing operations for John George. Uh, before we move forward, I want to take a quick moment just to do some quick level setting to make sure that everyone has the same understanding of uh, the patients we serve at John George, as well as how we get reimbursed for those services we provide. At John George, we provide both inpatient and emergency services for the mental health. And uh, as you can see in the patient mix graph down on the bottom left-hand corner there, uh, the vast majority of our patients are Medi-Cal and qualify under the Short Doyle Act in some capacity. And so for some of you who are, I don't know if everyone's familiar with Short Doyle, but essentially it is a Medi-Cal program that focuses on providing mental health services. And what's unique about Short Doyle is that it's actually run at the county level, not the state. So um, what we do is we, uh, AHS invoices the county for all of the mental health services we provide at John George. And that's based on a specific rate structure that gets uh, negotiated with the county on an annual basis with a not to exceed contract that's in place. The county then in turn bills their services or bills the, the state for the services that we invoice to them so that they can get reimbursed and they use a uh, an EMR called INSIST. Any questions about short double form one? Okay. Um, you see one other graph on here, and I want to talk about the numbers real quick. And, and, and this is why we're going to be focusing on the short oil patient population at John George tonight. Um, if you look at the numbers, you see that out of all of the inpatient bed days, and this is uh, these are the averages for the previous fiscal year. So the trends do vary from year to year, but these were the numbers that we experienced last year. So out of all of the all of the days that spent in a bed at John George inpatient, you can see that only 45% of them were billed at the full acute rate, whereas over 30% was billed at a, at a lower admin rate. 
10% of them were denied completely because there was some, some sort of discrepancy between our system and their system. So Epic and Insist, there was an account level discrepancy on 10% of the accounts. And so those fell off and were denied. And then another 9% uh, due to a lack of medical necessity. I have a quick question, um, maybe more than one. So the not to exceed contract negotiated annually with the county um, I, I, if memory serves, I feel like we typically go over the services provided, even though we hit the ceiling on what the county is going to pay. Um, can you confirm if that's true? Tim, do you want to speak to previous yeah. years? Yeah, no, I, I typically I would not say that we have not maxed out the contract, but what the county has done in the past is if they were able to build the state and they got additional funds or our costs were higher than what we were reimbursed, they and they can get reimbursed, they will pass it to us. They have really been a good partner. And I have to also say that, you know, AHS has been the one that has not done a good job in um, billing for these services. It's all manual. It's all on paper. It's a crazy process. Uh, I don't want to take any thunder from Michael, but um, we need to do better and we are doing better. So I'll, I'll stop there and let Michael continue. Thanks, Kim. I appreciate it. Any other questions before I move on? Okay. As I mentioned, I, I was brought on earlier this year. Uh, one of the first things I did was to uh, was to do a front-to-back assessment of the of various departments and workflows that impact our ability to consistently invoice for the services. And as I was doing all the job shadowing and, and learning the various workflows, I was putting the challenges that I identified into two buckets. One was technical and one was workflow specific. And the, the first big one that jumped out at me is that we have no ability to interface uh, between Epic and the county system, which is really, that is the, the catalyst to many other downstream issues that we're having because we're not able to set up a payment system the way we would for uh, any other payer. Uh, essentially what we have to do is we have to, uh, all of these accounts get zeroed out automatically and then the workflows then take place outside of Epic on spreadsheets. And it's very, like, like Kim was saying, incredibly manual, incredibly uh, problematic and it leads to the next thing, which is all of that data is living outside of Epic uh, on network drives on spreadsheets uh, with no visibility there. And because of that, we have no ability to create like analytical reports or dashboards or look for trends. Uh, so we're really kind of in the dark on a lot of these workflows. And when we send the monthly invoices, we receive a, you know, a check back from them, but it doesn't, it's not accompanied with uh, an itemized EOB or RA. So uh, we don't have any visibility into what's specifically being denied and what's not being denied at the time of uh, reimbursement. And beyond that, I was noticing that there are several workflows where they're just not built into Epic. It was missed at some point. And so, you know, Epic's not being fully utilized uh, for some of these workflows that could be in there now. On the workflow side, as I was saying, incredibly manual, incredibly fragmented across multiple uh, departments. A lot of these steps are redundant. So you see a lot of redundancy across the teams. There's a, a lack of communication between teams in terms of troubleshooting and then identifying these things. We have no KPIs in place to you know, determine how well we're doing. And we're required to manually keep two live systems in sync uh, at all times. 
I do have a question about EPIC, EPIC implementation. Is EPIC fully implemented at John George? EPIC is fully implemented. There were just some workflows that I identified that had not been caught and not uh, configured at the time of go live. Great. When was go live? It's September of 2019, if I'm not mistaken. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Yeah. So to address these challenges, I, you know, we need to focus on both the operational priorities to get ourselves in a better position and clean up a lot of the backlogged accounts that we, uh, we have sitting out there, as well as identify any process improvements that we can put in place to streamline those, streamline those efforts uh, to give us more structure and accountability moving forward. Um, these are four of the, the big priorities on the operational side. The first one uh, being a big one, there was no dedicated billing team for John George at all. We had one person. Uh, there was no adequate training or cross-training, I'm sorry, cross-training for other people. So when that person was on, out sick or on vacation, there was no backup. Uh, that person actually did leave. So the first goal uh, for me was to, to backfill that vacant FTE that was in place. I was able to hire somebody on. She's a, an amazing replacement. I also have two additional temporary employees assisting with the backlog. Uh, and the goal is to post and hire a second FTE so that we do have that, you know, multiple person coverage. We do have two people cross-trained on all these workflows. And the, 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 the plan is to actually, it'll be a net zero addition for FTEs because we're taking one of the workflows from another team. The person who previously did that just retired. So the FTE is vacant. We are, you know, the hope is to move the work and the FTE over at the same time so that we've got uh, two dedicated FTEs on the billing team. Another thing that uh, was a, in precarious situation was the monthly invoicing. Uh, we were previously at one point a full 12 months behind. That was holding up over $30 million in revenue. Uh, and then, of course, we, with the 12-month timeline uh, or deadline for filing, we were losing millions more every month because of the timeline or the timely filing denials. We are currently sitting at six months behind, and uh, we're doing actively cross-training the all three employees right now with a goal of being 100% current and fully cross-trained across all three in the next 90 days. Another place where we were losing a lot of money, uh, the, the county sends what's called unmatched reports. And essentially what that is, is it's every account with some sort of discrepancy that's holding up the ability to invoice for that account or to be reimbursed for that account. Um, it's, it's around three to $5 million in revenue held up every year. We were two and a half years behind on it. Uh, we are currently, we just finished fiscal year 20. So we were able to complete 19 and 20 and we are beginning work on fiscal year 21. It takes, it's a very manual process at this point, but um, you know, so the, the goal is in the next 60 days to be 100% complete with fiscal year 21. And then we'll start establishing this as a monthly task so that it's not such a daunting thing. Uh, and we'll have more timely reimbursement on that. And then I mentioned this a little bit a moment ago, uh, the fragment of workflows. So there are three major components that ultimately feed into the ability to send uh, an accurate and timely invoice. The first is the, the data entry that's being done by the registration team. So they enter all patient data into the county system. The, so AHS has access to INSYST. They enter all the patient encounter, uh, encounter information. Then once a month, the county sends us what's called a reconciliation report. Um, that is, uh, I call it the raw data. So it's everything that's been entered into the system uh, in the previous month into INSYST. And then somebody else on patient access would reconcile that against what we have in EPIC, fix any discrepancies or, that they find, and then 
what they complete ultimately drives what's invoiced uh, at the end of each month. So current state, the billing team, my team has been cross-trained on the reconciliation piece and we have actually just did the first months. Um, we are finishing it up this week and the goal is to fully transition that over as well as cross-train on the census data entry into INSYST uh, and, and have that transitioned over in the next 90 to 120 days. And with that, we feel like we'll have more visibility into the accounts. We'll be able to own every step of the process. We'll be able to make sure that uh, you know we can take a more proactive approach on, on reconciling any kind of discrepancies with the ultimate goal of more timely filing and uh, fewer, uh, fewer accounts on the unmatched reports. And then finally, uh, on the other side of that, is the process and some improvement. And um, we just had the, the John George Billing Operations Project approved uh, and scoped. And so this is the scope of work that we're looking at uh, in terms of getting ourselves into a better place, a more stable place, uh, more accountable place. So uh, the first work thread is ward consults. And uh, this is this is a pretty, pretty straightforward one. So essentially uh, a med search patient attending physician will place an order for a consultation, a psychiatric consultation. One of the psychiatrists over at John George will come over to the, the med surge unit. They'll perform the psychological evaluation. They'll chart the note. Um, and then we uh, are allowed to bill the county for these by the minute. So if it's a you know, 60 minute uh, report, we would bill at you know X number of dollars per minute. Uh, this is one of those uh, workflows that I was referring to a minute ago when I said it wasn't fully utilized in Epic. This was never built out at GoLive, and essentially we're still performing these services, but we haven't built for it in two years, so we're losing. Uh, from what I was able to gather from uh, you know previous documentation, it looks to be around two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Uh, that we are actually starting work on this week, so hoping to see that money coming in very quickly. Can I ask a question about that as it relates to the psychiatrist staffing? Um, you know, John George is a standalone campus, uh, separate from our medical center. So I'm very curious about the, the workflow and I don't want to get too into details, but like, how do you send someone to a satellite campus? I'm not sure what, uh, you know, as far as staffing resources go, maybe Dr. Siddhartha does. I, I have spoken with Dr. Villanea about this uh, as we were doing discovery. Um, and he, he it, the, the topic of resourcing never came up. It sounds like it's just something they've always done and it wasn't a problem. But uh, again, that's maybe because we just didn't talk about that piece. But uh, essentially they, they get a phone call or a message or an order in, in Epic and then the, uh, whoever's available would then uh, travel over to the other campus, provide that, that consultation and then chart that into Epic. And that's the workflow that we're trying to push. I can add a little bit to that, Trustee Estine. Uh, essentially, we have always had a consult service, uh, especially, especially focused at Highland, and it was in person. A lot of our services in the COVID time have become at least hybrid tele. Uh, uh, when COVID hit, we uh, and we also had an in-person consult psychiatrist covering San Leandro and Alameda Hospital, two separate, one with one AHS employed, other with Traditions Behavioral Health. But what we did when COVID started was we started, uh, you know, we were really worried about, we were going on diversion a lot. I think we have, I've talked about this in the past. And uh, 
we were really worried about the EDs completely coming to a standstill with behavioral health patients because we had to decrease the census in PES. We couldn't just have 40, 50 patients in there. So one of the things we did was we started uh, covering the, our EDs using telepsychiatry, using the psychiatrists who are currently working at John George, right? So during the daytime, live people at, at the campuses during the evenings and weekends, tele from John George. So that's how we, and the, it's the same EMR. So the messaging, although you have to operationalize and have shared agreement about how you're going to do it exactly, but that actually is not that difficult and that has worked out okay. But how that really ties into billing uh, is uh, and uh, if, uh, if the charges are being dropped and you know at the back end if it's being billed and reimbursed, if the contracts, for example, covers it not, my uh, you know, but for example, San Leandro and Alameda, I think, uh, well, at least uh, there was a challenge with uh, not be not having a direct contract with the county BHCS about mm -hmm. uh, ward consults at those two sites. There was one for Highland, for example. Yep. So, uh, you know. Uh, I don't know too much detail on the nutshell. So that's Thank how you, that was helpful. Okay. Um, the next item on here is uh, the clinical admin and denied days. This is in regard to the, the daily concurrent review workflows that take place between the John George UM team and the uh, county utilization management team. Uh, currently, this is another one of those workflows that takes place outside of EPIC. Uh, based on the feedback that I got while shadowing with the UM team, they, they collectively spend about 16 hours a day manually creating these patient spreadsheets, which end up serving as a, a patient list, uh, which then gets secure emailed over to the county. The county then logs into Epic, does their, uh, their concurrent review, makes their determination, charts that back on the spreadsheet, and then mails it back over to uh, the John George UM team. Just like everything else so far, all of this data lives in spreadsheets on network drives instead of in Epic, so it's not uh, readily available to be pulled into uh, you know, reports and dashboards. Um, for this portion of it, the, the goal is to get all of this into Epic so that we're not spending so many hours in a day creating these spreadsheets and mailing them back and forth. Um, we're hoping that that will streamline their daily workflow and, and, and really reduce the amount of time they're spending every day uh, you know, needlessly creating spreadsheets that could be a report in Epic. The, the next piece here is the invoicing and reconciliation. So these are the, the workflows that we're pulling onto my team. They are incredibly manually intensive. The uh, reconciliation takes about four weeks. The, uh, the invoicing takes about two to three weeks per. Um, and then, you know, as you can see, that adds up. And then the unmatched report takes seven or eight weeks. Um, a lot of time being spent just manually creating spreadsheets. Uh, in addition to that, they are prone to user error because everything's done manually. So what I'm planning to do, and I'm, I've been working with business intelligence already, we're creating custom databases, uh, database tables to using the reconciliation reports, that raw data that we get every month from the county. And then we'll use that to start pulling it together with Epic data and then uh, you know, automating as many workflows as possible, taking that, that human error uh, component out where possible as well. So uh, hoping to see some, some significant savings in time there as well as fewer errors. Enhanced reporting. So once we have these previous two completed, uh, we're gonna have a lot more data in the EPIC environment. 
And so, you know, in terms of case management, we'd be able to start creating those analytical reports in Epic to help strategize on how best to care for the patient population, invoice and reconciliation with that custom database table that I was just referring to, or the, you know, the series of them uh, that can feed analytics and start giving us a lot more visibility into the data and what's going on with these accounts on a monthly basis. The next one is PES and IP, you know, inpatient encounters. The county insist treats these as completely separate encounters and Epic combines them. So when somebody goes from PES into a, an inpatient bed, uh, it's, it's treated as a transfer and it's all one encounter. That creates a lot of inconsistencies in between the two systems. So when we're doing reconciliation, it is that's one of the things that takes three or four weeks because the dates of service are always jumbled uh, for these patients. So. Uh, we are. We haven't started the work on this yet, except for some some brief conversations. But we need to do a lot of uh, additional discovery to determine what the best solution is there to be able to to carve these out either in Epic or with analytics, uh, so that we can uh, we can be be more reliable and more consistent with Insist. With the department workflows. Uh, in case management over at John George, we we do have an appeals process that's supported to us from the county, but currently we're not using that. Uh, based on my conversations with them, it's due to a lack of bandwidth. So I'm hopeful that with the, the clinical admin denied days work right up above, if we're able to streamline that 16 hours, that will free up some time to uh, to be able to stand up a, you know, the, a robust appeals process for the denied accounts. <clears throat> with INSYST, um, these are the, the ones that I'm con currently uh, consolidating onto my team. It was an operational um, it was an operational priority, but because there's going to be a lot of coordination across different teams and training requirements, we also put it into the scope of the project so that we can track its progress and make sure that we get resourced uh, as needed uh, and get that, um, you know, get that, the, the attention that it deserves. And then another department workflow we're working on is trying to get a, a stronger, more standard Medi-Cal screening process at the John George Patient Access Team. Um, what we've noticed is that there are a lot that slip through the cracks and don't get signed up or you know um, activated on or enrolled on Medi-Cal in a timely manner, which is ultimately uh, leading into additional uh, denials. So we're trying to get that cleaned up as well. And then finally, you know, we want Epic to be the source of truth. We want to be able to see the entire re uh, patient revenue cycle within the EMR that we use, rather than you know on spreadsheets. So uh, working with the county and, and figuring out ways that we can do that ultimately. We, we want to be able to get some kind of itemized EOB from them so that we can really close the loop on what goes on with these accounts. Uh, and then finally, we want to establish KPIs so that we can gauge our ongoing performance and make sure that you know, we continue to move forward instead of uh, you know, con constantly having to look in the rear view to clean up our, our historical messes. Any questions about any of that? I want you to take a deep breath. Because that was a lot. <laughs> it was, and I apologize. I know that we're like behind on our time, so I wanted to get through it all and, and not ruin everybody's schedule. Oh, no, no ruining at all. You were great. And yeah. I really appreciate your entire team uh, hearing from the three of you tonight. And all these improvements is just, it's heartwarming. Um, I really appreciate all the work that you've put in. And, you know, it was mentioned that one of the issues at IOP was billing. I I want to know if you're focusing any of your uh, expert attention for billing on the IOP system. 
the conversations and first of all thank you very much uh, i'm actually very excited every day i'm a little bit more excited when i see the progress that we're making and frankly i owe it to the three people i've i've hired on because they are fantastic but uh the conversations have started uh, i've had a, a brief conversation with patty i've had a brief conversation with kim um it's not it's it's not in scope at this point. My focus right now is to, you know, the house is on fire and I want to make sure that we, we put that out and, and we're, we're maximizing our reimbursement for John George first. Uh, but then, you know, as, as we get that stability and I don't have so much time being you know, required for these other efforts, I would love to take part in some of the ILP. But right now I'm not, I'm not a part of the ILP. Thank you. I see we have some trustees with hands up. I think I saw yours, Dr. Chair, first. Thank you. Um, thank you to all the presenters. I'm, uh, I'm going to focus on Mr. McClytus. Welcome, sir. Thank you. I got to tell you, I'm a little dumbfounded, and I mean in a good way. Um, I've never seen such an uh, analytical dissection of, of, of the problems with regard to uh, rev cycle uh, out of this, this section of our, of our system. For me, this has sort of been a black box. I've never really understood it. And um, uh, sorry, I, I'm not trying to do those thumbs up. I think Zoom is now putting all kinds of marks on. <laughs> well, I'm thumbs upping you, but now it's doing all kinds of stuff. So, uh, uh, you know, uh, a wise person once said, first seek to understand. That was actually our COO who told me that. Um, um, so I, thank you for helping giving me an understanding of something. I'm still a little overwhelmed by how much there is. But you bet you, I'm going to go back and look at your slide set to help me understand all the work you've been doing. I'm a little overwhelmed for you. <laughs> uh, I appreciate the work you've done. So I'm going to ask the trustee question that we always ask. What do you need from us to help you be successful, to help us be successful? I appreciate everything you just said. Um, and to answer that, I would say at this point, I don't think anything. I've got a great team with Mark Kratzky and Kim Miranda and you know my immediate uh, boss, Terry Manifesto. Uh, everybody's been incredibly supportive. Uh, you know, I said I need I need three temporary employees. I need to be able to hire them. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for a very specific personality as opposed to skill set. I had the backing for that. I was able to find three very engaged, very excited people. Uh, we're making good progress. The, you know, I don't know if anybody else here has built a house or had a house built, but, you know, the first two thirds of that is stuff that you don't really get to appreciate. It's permits and it's, you know, it's foundation and plumbing and wiring. Uh, and then all of a sudden in the last third, you get to see it go up and you get to see it take shape and you, you get all excited. Uh, we have been spending the last four or five months laying that foundation and we are getting to a point now where we're starting to, you know, put some, some structure, some frame to that. Uh, and so I think in the next 90 to 120 days, we're really going to start seeing a, a lot more revenue flowing in. You're going to see us being able to take a more proactive approach. Uh, so uh, to answer your question, I don't think I need anything specifically right now. Um, you know, like I said, I've got a, I've got great leadership above me that's been there every step. Well, thank you again. Thank you and yeah. welcome to the invitation. I'm glad, glad to meet you, sir. So thank you. Thank you. And, you know, if you go over those slides and have additional questions, don't hesitate to reach out to me. I'm, I'm always happy to do one-on-one -on -one calls or, you know, something less formal than a board of trustees. Thank you for that. Yeah. Uh, Trustee Blue. So uh, thank you again. This is so different from last year. Good. Right. In terms of listening to the IOP staff and the issues that they raised are issues that you guys are addressing. So, you know, thank you. And 
I don't know if there's any IOP staff there, but, you know, I hope there are some so that they can see the progress that's been made. Right. And the fact that I think it was you, Patty, that said you talked to the staff and listen to what they have to say in their input. That's really, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. Thank that's you. That's how we build it. That's how we build it. That's right. That's right. Takes a team. <clears throat> Thank you. All right. Do we have any other questions? Any other praise? Trustee Banerjee is clapping and put up a heart also. All right. And forgive me for not asking members of the public. Is there any public comment on this item? All right, seeing none, we will move on in our agenda to the next item, which is item C1, uh, an update about the East Bay Medical Group PSA. Okay, so I'd like to say a few comments before I turn it over to Dr. Phyllis Warren. The two of us will be presenting together tonight. This is the status of the East Bay Medical Group PSA contract renewal. Um, uh, Trustee Esteen and I uh, discussed the agenda for tonight and decided it would be a very good idea to provide some history and just general education on the East Bay Medical Group PSA. Um, we have many new trustees who may not understand the PSA structure or how, how all of this uh, was uh, built last year. It's only been in play for uh, maybe not quite a year and a half. It was effective July 1 of last year. Um, it is a large contract, which means it does go to this body for ultimate approval, uh, actually to the Finance Committee and then to the board for ultimate approval, excuse me. Uh, generally speaking, um, we would do an annual review to make sure that the payments in the PSA are within fair market value. So, um, We'll get to the final steps for this renewal process uh, at the end of our presentation, but today's purpose is really just to give you all some education and to discuss the PSA so that when we come back, you guys will have what you need, or at least an understanding to be able to approve any changes that we make to the agreement. And at this point, we, uh, you know, we haven't uh, gotten the work done to be able to uh, provide anything for you to approve. It's really clearly discussion and education tonight. So having said that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Achilles Warren to uh, start us off. Great. Thank you. Good evening, trustees and colleagues. Um, I think you have probably seen some slides from me um, over the past few months um, as the president of East Bay Medical Group around just the history of the group where we're at right now, some of the primary challenges we're facing as a group. So I'll, um, I'll take a moment to refresh your memory, but I do want to kind of step back and say, I, I believe we're at a point right now as an organization to have, although a very low level maturity, a level of maturity to actually review our professional services agreement for the first time since its inception in July of 2020. Um, and having met most of the physicians in EBMG, um, and I feel very accountable to them, you know, the things that they're asking for have been, you know, review of their compensation, a review of their benefits, or opportunities to professionally develop, um, review of their contracts around language. Um, and these are things that have been asked for for not just my tenure over the last eight months, but really for years. So this is the first time that some of these things are being addressed for our physicians since some of them were hired years ago. 
Um, and I think at the end of the day, they just want to be valued for their work. Um, and, you know, I think that they have demonstrated some extreme patience um, with all the changes in the medical group merger um, that happened over the past few years and culminated in East Bay Medical Group forming last July. Um, and then some of them could not wait any longer. And so that's where we've seen the 10% attrition of the physician group, um, you know, over the last year to date. Um, and that's where, that's where we're at. So the, this, this is being fueled by both opportunity and, and long overdue addressing of the issues that the physicians have faced. Um, but also a crisis point that we're reaching. And I, obviously we're seeing that all over the system um, in terms of staffing as well. So, so to me, this represents sort of our first real collaborative effort between East Bay Medical Group and AHS, truly driven by the priorities and wishes of our physicians, our physician leaders, but also the needs of the system and our patients in terms of staffing our clinical services. Um, so we can move to the next slide. Um, just as a reminder of the scope of East Bay Medical Group, um, about 300 physicians um, representing around 200 FTE, um, 25 specialties represented, and, and, and not unfortunately not encompassing our mental health colleagues um, who we just heard from, um, but a number of other specialties represented here, um, covering um, and servicing many of our facilities, including all of our acute care facilities and um, wellness centers. Next slide. This is the this is a, a a graphic or a picture of the PSA, as they say. You know, a picture is worth a thousand words, so we'll see. Um, but the way the PSA is structured is there is a fixed component which is represented by this blue bar, and these are you know the months of FY21. This is the 21 actual. Um, and then there is a variable component, which is represented by the orange and the green together. Um, and the variable component is, uh, is basically call that can be provided by SANS or it can be provided by East Bay Medical Group. And again, the blue is the actual um, compensation that was planned for employees of East Bay Medical Group. So if you um, look at this bar over here, this was our budget. This is what we planned to do when we first put East Bay Medical Group together. I am happy to say how close we were, right? Because we didn't know. <laughs> we had OCare coming together and we had AHP. And so we did our best and we actually came pretty close. It's just a little bit over. Um, and this, so this is the budget for this year. Um, there is another component that's not represented in these bars. It's about 13.3 million. It is uh, for mid-levels, which are now employees, benefit costs for East Bay Medical Group, some overhead like payroll taxes, things like that, some administrative costs and legal fees. So the total of this contract in FY21 was right about $75 million. So it's a big contract. Um, our hope is that we can uh, carve some of these out in the renewal. Uh, more to come on that, not really important today, um, but I did wanna give you the, the, the a full understanding of what the current PSA includes. So what is this telling you? This is telling you that um, we had expected for um, for the East Bay Medical Group 
employees to represent around uh, 4 million, just under 4 million a month in compensation. What's happened is um, they, the East Bay Medical Group folks, have picked up a lot of additional call and coverage requirements. So they ended up um, picking up all of this uh, green area here, much bigger than what we had planned, and the orange shrunk substantially, really. So the East Bay Medical Group has uh, really stepped up to help ensure that, you know, we've got our call coverage and, and our, our patients are being cared for uh, even despite COVID. So that, that is what this is telling you. This top line here is the FTEs. It's pretty flat. It picked up a bit, and then it's been pretty flat through June. However, um, uh, we're going to have a slide here in just a few minutes from Dr. Achilles Warren to talk about what's been happening since uh, June. The next slide here was the original goals of this PSA. Um, they were to empower East Bay Medical Group to partner with AHS to lead AHS. It, gave, it gives them a platform to drive change. It also simplified the administrative burden of uh, AHP. We used to charge back our legal time and our counting time, and we had all these chargebacks, and uh, we created a very complicated structure that we were able to eliminate. Uh, we wanted to drive quality and patient care. Uh, and again, by giving East Bay Medical Group a platform, they have the ability to help lead and, and make this happen. And then finally, we wanted to duplicate, we wanted to eliminate the duplication of overhead. So before we had OCare, we had AHP, we had AHS, and we, uh, we had a lot of duplicative services that we were able to eliminate. The overall goal when we came together was to have this be budget neutral, and you can kind of see here how we did it. And as I just reported, we were very close to budget. Okay, so in terms of kind of how we're moving forward with our professional services agreement, um, revision, renewal, um, we, we, we thought to establish some guiding principles, and these are mutual between East Bay Medical Group and AHS. Um, we, they've been approved by our compensation committee, our board, um, and certainly um, have gotten buy-in from our AHS executive team as well. Um, and so really what we're hoping to do is you know, ensure that we have a compensation structure that's fair and transparent, that really incentivizes our great talent to stay. Um, and, and, and also builds a culture and an environment where the people that come here who are truly mission-driven and change-makers can actually realize that potential to be that um, in our system. Um, and then our values that are guiding that are really that those of collaboration and optimization of our existing resources. Um, and so our plan is to really um, develop um, sort of a, a roadmap around how we're going to structure compensation, but also some of the support that AHS and EBMG need to um, provide one another um, over the next three years so we can get to a point where we have stability around our clinical service, service staffing um, from a physician perspective. We can go to the next slide. And so just to drive home the point of kind of what we're facing, we've had 19 physicians leave, um, which rep represents somewhere around 10% of our FTE workforce since January, with a few more having given notice towards the end of the year. And, and June and July and August, I would say, were the major drop-off points because that's 
when people plan to move um, during the summertime when school is out. Um, and, and I would say that there are several service lines that we're looking at that you know, are, are critically at risk we, where we need to really stabilize them if we're going to continue providing the level of service that we are, which often are 24-7 coverage in the case of our acute care, our surgical services, um, and then certainly ensuring that we have enough um, primary care um, providers to, um, you know, uh, see all of our covered lives. Um, I think we have a question from Trustee Blue. Hi, thank you. Um, I appreciate this uh, chart that was done here, but in terms of the decision to leave, you know, we always emphasize salary, but looking at this data, the top uh, reason why people are leaving is admin politics, perceived lack of AHS leadership support. So I do just want to point that out because it's not only salary. And then the question that I had is, I don't understand what they mean by admin politics. Yeah, this is a survey that was conducted um, earlier this year. Um, first of, you know, we'd never done a survey before of East Bay Medical Group um, physicians. Um, and essentially just simply ask the question, you know, how likely are you to leave within the next 12 months just to get a temperature on kind of people's appetite to stay or go and their loyalty to their current positions. Um, and what we found, unfortunately, from this um, pie chart, which I don't think was a surprise when you actually talk to people, but certainly was a surprise to see it kind of fleshed out as a quantitative metric, was that more than 50% mm -hmm. were sort of at least contemplating, if not definitely planning to leave, um, which, you know, we haven't seen those numbers, of course, um, and there are lots of reasons why people would or wouldn't. But what came out, we offered a, an option to um, select from a list of choices around why, well, why would you if you if you were to leave? And the first, um, uh, the, the most common answer had, you know, was often a, either a write-in answer around, I don't trust this, the administration that was in place. And this is really a reflection on the previous administration. Um, I, I don't, I'm not able to trust leadership. Um, I, I don't feel supported um, by um, administration at this institution. Um, and I, you know, I'm just being completely blunt about the sorts of things that we were seeing, but um, th these were sort of lumped together into that first category. And so to me, I completely agree that it's not about just the dollars, um, but having a clear and fair and transparent compensation scheme that values the people that we want to stay um, does instill confidence in leadership. Um, because it, it shows that there's a commitment to um, our physician population and, and ensure that they, ensuring that they feel valued, even in one, one of those ways. Um, in addition to that, providing opportunities around professional development, ensuring that physician leaders are supported, ensuring that people that have ideas that are on the front lines are heard, those are all things that would satisfy, I think, our population as well. Um, and I think we have to lay some foundation around equitable, fair compensation to even get to those conversations. Yeah, I just don't want us to lose sight that there are other issues um, that are being raised by the physicians in addition to salary. I get salary, we have to be competitive, but I think we need to drill down on exactly, you know, how people feel, the art piece, right, feel about continuing to work um, because, you know, lack of AHS leadership support, admin politics, hopefully that's... Um, being addressed. Um, so I'd be curious. This was this survey was done earlier this year. 
Yes. Doctor? Okay. I'd be interested to see since uh, the East Bay Medical Group has, you know, consolidated whether the number one issue of why people are leaving, if that's decreased, do they feel better about the leadership? Yeah, I think it'd be wise to repeat that survey probably earlier. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have a, a question about the retention numbers. Um, in the corner, it says average retention for medical groups is five to seven percent, um, and nineteen positions have left since January, which is right at seven percent of two hundred and ninety-eight. I'm curious uh, if the majority of these folks left in the summer, which is the typical time people move, you know, kids are out of school, all these other things. Um, what was their attrition rate in past years? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And the 19 that left were all FTEs, so the denominator was actually around 200. Um, so it represents a, a far higher, um, you know, sort of percentage um, than the 5 to 7% turnover. And I, I would say that, you know, that was cited just to kind of give a sense of industry uh, average. But um, just anecdotally, historically, for example, at Oak Care, less than five a year would turn over. Um, and so it was very, very low turnover prior to, prior to this, you know, these last year and a half or so. Um, prior so to the EBG merger. Yeah. And I, I did conduct exit interviews with a number of people that left. Um, and I can attest to sort of, um, you know, the, the, you know, unfortunately about a quarter of the people that have left were, were leaders. And so, um, and, and that to me speaks to just a feeling of um, disempowerment, not, not being able to realize their potential as leaders, not feeling supported, um, which, you know, I think a lot has changed since um, those, those individuals made those decisions, um, certainly with our new administration and leadership and whatnot. But, um, but those were the sorts of sentiments that were expressed. I see Trustee Blue has her hand up again. Was that an old hand? <laughs> All right. So this uh, next slide compares the current East Bay Medical Group total compensation to the MGMA median. Uh, we have not talked about productivity at all here. This is literally just total compensation to median. The good news is that um, we're actually quite close to median. The primary cares are a little over, specialties are a little under, we're at 95.2% uh, overall. The bad news is that the East Bay Medical Group doctors had to take a lot of additional call and provide a lot of additional work to get to median. So we need to realign and balance and we've got where resources are consumed, but I think probably a better word is where resources are directed. And so what I mean by that is we have a bunch of non-East Bay Medical Group contracted physician payments that are outside of this PSA. They total about $7 million. So that's people we're paying to do call. Potentially, we could systemize. Maybe some of that money can be moved here. Um, we also know that um, the base pay and call burden here, it says varies by department, but it also varies within a specialty department. So that's leading to this idea that things aren't transparent and fair. There is a need to balance the call to be sustainable. 
we need we need to definitely make sure that people aren't doing so much call that they don't have work-life balance. We need a recruitment plan. We need to be actively moving on uh, a recruitment plan a plan to stabilize East Bay Medical Group and make sure that we can retain physicians. Um, there are opportunities to systemize work. We've got four hospitals. You know, how should we share resources? How should this work? And we need to we need to dive in and see what we can do. And obviously, if we can figure out how to be more efficient and increase productivity, then we can drive more revenue to offset increased expenses. Um, we've only been on Epic for two years and only this last year have we been reporting um, RVU data. So it's new and it's clunky. We also had COVID in the middle of this. Um, and I know that there are some specific data issues. So we um, purposely have excluded the productivity information from this, but we do know overall we are below median in productivity. I have a question about the slide. Sure. So when it says total compensation, uh, but we're also talking about a lot of call, which in other words, for people who aren't doctors, that might be considered overtime. Um, how much is the compensation for folks when they're not working overtime? Um, well, how much overtime is this? And in order to compare to the surveys, we have to look at total compensation. Um, my first slide kind of gave you the graphic of it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we, if you want us to come back, uh, we can discuss base comp versus, um, you know, call. But the the problem here is because it's not fairly distributed and it's not balanced. Doing so, you we're going to dive into a into a hole where. We've got about seven specialties that are all over the board. So we need, we know we need to fix this and we need to address it, um, which is why uh, Dr. Phyllis Warren and I are here tonight, letting you know all of the good work that's happening so that we can bring forward a plan to you to approve. Yeah, do we think that this is a staffing issue? Why docs are working so much call? The recruitment plan well, is urgently needed. We originally had planned for a lot more SANS. I mean, when you saw that original orange bar that I gave you, our budget was that we were gonna hire SANS to do a lot of that work. We did not hire SANS. We ended up relying on East Bay Medical Group. I'll, I'll, I'll make a couple more comments here if it's okay. I think with regards to um, your first question, Trustee Esteen, how much more are people working to get to this point? It, it's extremely variable by specialty. Um, some specialties, particularly smaller ones um, that are understaffed, uh, they might be getting a quarter of their salary based on additional work that they're doing. Um, and, and there are other specialties that have a very solid base salary um, with a reasonable amount of call or overnight or whatever the sort of extra burden of work is that's expected for a physician to do. Um, but it, it's pretty variable. And so we have prioritized the specialties that are really struggling for both recruitment as well as around their compensation structure um, to actually deep dive into those, restructure kind of how we staff those specialties, reset their base expectations, reset their call expectations, and determine if we need additional FTEs to actually fill out the complement. So there's a lot of work being done um, around 
about six or seven specialties, as Kim mentioned, that are really struggling and they seem to align really well with the specialties that are actually under, understaffed and are having critical um, staffing issues. Um, so I, I just wanted to mention that there's a lot of kind of, there's a lot of detail behind the question that you're asking and yeah, I think we're happy to provide it. Yeah, I'm sure. I know what burnout is. I worked seven days straight for many years, you know, picking up the shifts for the money and making up whatever, being a single parent. So I can imagine the pressure, you know, and also it feels good to know that your, your colleagues don't have to work short. So the, you know, the, but the burnout is real. So this next slide is our progress to date. Um, uh, East Bay Medical Group and Alameda Health System have agreed upon guiding principles uh, and that we are going to address the outliers. Um, you know, there are people that are taking way too much call and there's other people that are way at the bottom of the pay range. And, you know, we need to, we need to redistribute dollars and we may need to contribute more dollars to fix this because it is not sustainable. The second item here is we agree there would not be a decrease in compensation. So if productivity is showing really low, we're not just going to go in and say we're going to cut your salary. We're going to look at a longer term plan to uh, figure out how we can be more efficient as an organization. It takes more than just physicians to be productive. So it takes all of us. It takes the village. So we need to work together to do this. And we, we agree that we would not decrease anybody's compensation. Um, we did commit to a raise of uh, 3%. That's about 1.6 annually, just as a commitment off the top. Um, this is unbudgeted, and so would this other uh, portion to address all these outliers or liars would also be unbudgeted. Um, we are reviewing, we're doing the deep dive in the, in the seven specialties that Dr. Killis Warren just talked about, and we have engaged ECG consultants together to do this. And I listed out a bunch of things here just to give you an idea of the complexity, because it is very complex. There's embedded call and base comp. There's additional call. There's outside contracts. There's, you know, um, there's not written necessarily, necessarily not staffing plans documented, I should say. Um, call coverage is all over the board. Admin time and directorships are not aligned. So we have a lot of work to do, and we are starting with these seven specialties, and we've agreed to that. And then the other thing here is we'd like to move the benefit risk out of the PSA. So when I first gave you that picture of the PSA, pictures were the a thousand words. Um, basically, the the there is additional money that we're uh, giving to East Bay Medical Group to pay benefits and taxes, and really um, that doesn't need to have that complexity. And East Bay Medical Group really shouldn't have to be at risk if you know our benefit costs go up. Um, so that's where where we are in regard to progress to date. Um, our next step is uh, obviously AHS uh, and East Bay me. Medical Group. Trustee Blue has her hand up. Trustee Blue, you're on mute. Trustee Blue, can you go back to that previous slide? Kimberly, thank you. So where is the 3% coming from? The three is that just coming 
Alameda Health said that it is unbudgeted. We did not budget the, this increase, nor did we budget anything to address these outliers. So we would have to find a way to pay for it through performance improvement or other initiatives. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then the, the other thing, and then Mark or Ahmad, maybe you guys can answer this, but my understanding is that uh, the union has filed for recognition for the doctors. And I raise that because they are going to be bar bargaining their own contract, right? So this number could change. And you got to bargain the contract first before we start talking compensation. Then I, I do appreciate that there is acknowledgement that we have to deal with the disparity in wages as one way to recruit. But there are other issues that are going to come into play once the union is recognized. And my understanding is that the petition is at the PERB. That's that correct. Correct? That is okay. correct, Trustee Blue. Okay. Yeah, so these, these discussions started back in April, May, and uh, the, uh, the first year of the PSA um, ended June 30. Mm -hmm. uh, and so our goal here is to make, uh, do an amendment and have the amendment done for a January 1 start. I don't think anything that we're doing here impacts the um, the union or any bargaining that will happen at that at that later date. Okay, I just want to make sure that their rights as workers are respected because we we could uh, face an unfair labor practice charge, the health system, right? Because they this could be construed to doing direct bargaining without bargaining with the elected union uh, bargaining team. So I just want to make sure that we also cover ourselves legally and not get an unfair labor practice filed against us. Yeah, but I appreciate this work. Trustee Blue, we can have an uh, offline conversation about that certainly, but um, okay. as, as Kim pointed out that this uh, was in effect prior to the, uh, the union, any of us having any knowledge of the uh, unionization efforts. But we, we can certainly speak about it offline, Trustee Blue. Yeah, okay. Uh, just one point. So it sounds like if this was being discussed in April, which is prior to the approval of the full budget, um, and this is a very important um, need for recruitment and retention of our doctors, uh, it seems like we could have included this in the budget. Well, in April, we didn't have the data to be able to figure out um, what the compensation should be. Um, we also have performance improvement initiatives. And if we see more patients and we are able to bill more revenue, we have more money to pay physicians. So it's, it's not that it was just forgotten. It was we figured we thought we would be able to um, to pay for any increases that we needed with additional volume or with um, performance improvement initiatives. Uh, where are we on those performance performance improvement initiatives tonight? Uh, well, we, we, we bring that to you every other month. We did it last month and we will have it next month. Okay. <clears throat> so, uh, so again, um, 
uh, East Bay Medical Group and uh, AHS and ECG, the consulting group, are doing their work now. And the plan is by the end of November to have a, a pretty good idea of, of the changes that we want to make. Um, we'll need to understand, you know, what structures are needed to support the, the renewal. In other words, if uh, schedules change or if we need new pay codes, that sort of thing. Uh, and also we need to understand the costs so that we can come back and get approval. And so what that getting approval involves one, we need to have the East Bay Medical Group Board of Directors approve it. That's step one. Step two is the East Bay Medical Group and AHS leadership um, need to present to all of the trustees for approval. And if we're gonna get this done for January 1, which is you know what we have said we were going to do, then we will need to have a special meeting of the Board of Trustees to get this done. And so my hope for tonight was by giving you this background, we will be in a better place to be able to, to get this done. Any more questions or com uh, comments, discussion? I just want to make one more comment about the um, physician union efforts, and, and certainly I'm not privy to, to the inner workings of um, what that effort is, although I am in close touch with the organizers from the physician's side. Um, I, I really truly believe that the improvements that we're trying to make to the professional services agreement represent the, the wishes of the physicians, including the ones that are organizing. Um, I've been told to kind of keep charging ahead um, from my perspective as the leader of this group um, and that this is truly foundational to anything that we want to build moving forward, whether that's in a union structure or not. Um, and so I've been given the blessing um, to kind of represent the group in that way in this context. And we know that as the structure changes, who's at the table might change. But um, what one thing that I've been told um, is that uh, what we, what you know, some one of the one of the the motivations of unionizing is really to protect some of the changes, the positive changes that are coming out of our new newfound collaboration with our administration. So um, I'm hoping this can you know usher through by January 1st and really represent kind of our first real step at making the physician organization a lot more. Um, you know, solid, stronger, able to retain physicians, and then whatever comes of that moving forward, um, I hope, you know, we can sort of smooth that, have a smooth transition too. Thank you for that. Uh, Trustee Fox? Um, just question of what, what is the timing of the unionization effort? And when do we expect that to uh, occur, if it does occur? And if it does occur after we adopt a new PSA, will that PSA be honored uh, or will we have to renegotiate it at the, at the time of unionization? So uh, Trustee Fox, we, um, as uh, Trustee Blue mentioned, uh, they uh, SCIU 1021 did submit with PERB uh, recognition uh, documents. Um, uh, you know, it could be anywhere from three to six months. Uh, we we don't know. And the question of whether or not we would have to renegotiate, that's always on the table. So uh, it could happen, yes. 
Trustee Bouquet. Thank you, Madam Chair. Just in terms of logistics, uh, this one is to Dr. Achilles Swan, as well as uh, Ms. Miranda, who I believe sits on the EBMG board, as well as Mr. Frasky, who sits on the EBMG board. In terms of practicalities over this PSA coming out, the, the Board of Trustees has its last official meeting next Wednesday. Packets are due Friday. I'm presuming that's too hard pressed to make it for that packet. So can you walk me through what timelining we would be to navigate the EBMG board through the organization uh, and just uh, setting my trustees up for uh, kind of the landscape? When logistically would this be able to migrate to a special board meeting? Because I'm presuming it won't make next week's board. Correct. I'm, um, you know, in my mind, sort of the, the active deep dives that we're doing into the six or seven specialties that I mentioned, as, as well as kind of looking at compensation across the board, in addition to the language in the PSA that we can tighten up to su better support our physicians. Um, I think we're aiming to have all of that done by Thanksgiving um, in time for a December EBMG board meeting, which happens in the first, the first Thursday of December. Um, and then, you know, I think I would pass off to our executive team to determine um, when to bring that to the Board of Trustees. Yeah, so then uh, at that point, then we would uh, go through our internal process with budget oversight on, um, you know, what the dollars were. I think I mentioned there's also going to be probably some administrative work that needs to be done, like in Kronos and, and uh, with scheduling. Um, and then uh, we would do, need to do a special um, Board of Trustees meeting. Um, go back to this here these steps uh so does this uh, answer your question dr bouquet are you on mute trustee bouquet apologies what i heard from dr achilles warren she thinks from the ebmg board side she could probably have some type of PSA product roughly Friday, December 3rd. I'm trying to look for the navigation through the system because as we approach uh, the last two to three weeks, I'm thinking about board availability. So uh, I think anything beyond December 8th will be probably very, very hard, but perhaps trustees a Wednesday, December 15th. So I guess, Ms. Moran, I'm just asking if, if uh, Dr. Achilles Warren can get product which, of course, you sit on the EBMG board as well, by uh, Friday, December 3rd. Do you think a week and a half is enough to navigate uh, to a special board meeting by a Wednesday, December 15th? It's going to, it'll be tough. It will definitely be tough. And, you know, Ahmad has to do, he has to have all of his legal review. Um, but if we, if, if East Bay Medical Group is able to, by Thanksgiving, um, uh, figure out what changes they want to make, uh, then I think that, you know, we, we, we've got to, we can make a shot at it, do our okay. best to do it by the 15th. Um, probably we'll know more by that first week of December if we're going to pull it off. Uh, a special board of meetings require only 24 hours noticing, just as an FYI to the public. Next question to all of you. Is there a reason that January 1st couldn't perhaps be when, uh, Wednesday, January 12th, which will be the first board meeting of the new year? Uh, I'll just ask you, uh, uh, Dr. Achilles Warren, and I see 
Chair uh, Perez is also in, in, in the room. Chair Dr. Perez is chair of the East Bay Medical Group. So uh, just consideration of that is, as we're coming up into the, the, the holiday season and the availability of the board uh, for special meetings might be less. I'm just uh, potentially anticipating. So the next full board of the meeting will be Wednesday, January 12th. I'll just offer that up for your consideration. And of course, we'll keep in close contact uh, with you guys on that issue. Just trying to do logistics. One other thing we could do is have a special board meeting at the end of November um, if we get everything done. So that's another possibility. Dr. Perez, you mean a special board meeting of EBMG? Correct. Yes, yes, ma'am. Thank you. Okay, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just keep in close contact. Um, council, you'll help guide us with regard to timing as well. Correct, sir? Uh, absolutely. And, and Chair Bouquet, there's just uh, this issue of Stark that's in the background. Uh, uh, signatures have to be in place prior to any compensation that uh, could be approved. But there are some things you can do about that. But but that's just the general rule that that's why we wanted prior to January 1st. We'd like to move forward with all of these changes uh, to take place on January 1st. Well, maybe if I let you give your start presentation at the last Board of Trustees retreat, I would know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, 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 of course, the, the board will keep in close contact, uh, Council. You can help advise with regard to schedule. Absolutely. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your guidance and your help navigating that, uh, Trustee Bouquet. And, you know, I have to apologize. I never did ask for public comment. Are there any members of the public that would like to speak on this item? All right, hearing none. I will say that uh, members of the board may know that I wear multiple hats. One of the hats I wear is vice president of organizing for SEIU 1021, which full disclosure is the union that the doctors have chosen to organize their union with. Um, and I will say that the what Trustee Blue mentioned about an unfair labor practice uh, feels like we are straddling a fine line here by negotiating uh, terms we're talking about terms with the leaders of EBMG who are not going to be the members of the bargaining unit. And so the folks who would be represented by the terms being agreed to are not the folks who are negotiating these terms and therefore uh, may feel slighted if these terms are forced upon them without having the ability to participate in the ways that they are asserting themselves that they would like to be able to participate. Um, Madam Chair, yes, sir. And and in one few words, and just for 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 public notification, I am employed by East Bay Medical Group, so I will recuse from any vote uh, on, on such items, just uh, uh, by way of full transparency to the public. Thank you for that. All right, we will move on to the next item in our agenda, item D, which are contracts. We have four, five contracts to review tonight. I will let our chief operating officer take the lead on this. Yeah, there are five. And I think um, Mark, Amy, our CIO, his are the first two. And um, Trustee Esteen, do you want us to walk through each one or do you want to take a vote to approve? And I, what would you prefer? I would love if we could just get a, 
a highlight reel for each one. I know that there is public comment for one of the contracts, item D4. So when we get to D4, we can okay. get to the public comment. And if there's any other public comment uh, from members, please, you can chat to our board clerk uh, a message, or you can raise your hand at any time. Okay, very good. Then Mark, why don't you kick us off? Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, uh, trustees. So uh, real quick, I wanna actually do an introduction of both Dean Schold, um, who is on uh, camera here with us. Dean is our chief technology officer and can talk a little bit more about the first contract. Uh, I'll give a bit of an overview, but then if you have uh, additional details, he's here to support that. And then also Kevin Shorten. Kevin is the vice president of applications for us. And some of you may have met both of them, but uh, Kevin can uh, help in uh, speaking about the second uh, set of contracts that we're going to be uh, discussing. Uh, the first contract is uh, a contract actually that goes through Dell, but it's really for Microsoft Surface. Uh, services and specifically it's for our migration to office 365 it is a contractual obligation that we have in order to run the microsoft office suite uh, it is budgeted so it will be uh, budget neutral for us uh, as far as our plans but uh, since we're going over the million dollar uh, cost uh, component we do have an obligation to bring it to the board of course and i'm happy either dean or i can answer more questions about the spend and exactly what all that provides for us Budget neutral is something we like. <laughs> we do too. Totally agreed. <laughs> All right, I think we can move on. Well, I promised Dean that you were going to grill him a little bit, so I'm slightly disappointed, but... Uh... We can take that back. Hold on. All right, Dean, tell us where you were born. Tell us where you're from. Let's start from the beginning. I'm a Canadian, sorry. <laughs> and you get a pass. So... Uh, thank you uh, on that uh, one. The second contract's maybe slightly more complicated, but um, we, um, I, I think you're all aware that we do uh, routinely um, contract business with a variety of vendors where we use consultants, both to do staff augmentation if we can't fill specific positions. And uh, I, uh, well, actually, you probably don't know this, but there is a national shortage on uh, epic skill set um, across the nation, actually, but certainly in the Bay Area where there's just not enough uh, epic resources. So we do use contract firms to fill some of those positions. We also use um, uh, consultants to um, easily ramp up and ramp down when we either need additional resources on a project-based uh, uh, system or if we have a specific skill set that we need. In order to keep our costs down, we actually um, use four different consulting firms uh, in order to, to do business. And basically, we put bids out to those four um, uh, consulting firms and we uh, award based on the best uh, skill set at the lowest price uh, in, the, in those. And we find the competition works well for us. We're about to exceed the million dollar um, price point with two of those four firms. The reason I asked to come in with the uh, contract, which is structured a little bit uniquely, is we're asking for a $2 million bump for each of the four, uh, four vendors that we do business with. Because uh, you know, as we move through the rest of the year, we're not sure exactly where we'll award business. Right now, we have two of the firms that have gotten a little bit more business than the other two, but that could change later in the year because this really depends on what resources they we need and what resources they can bring in at the price. So we are um, expecting that on 
at least two of the four, if not all four firms will go over the million dollar threshold. We asked for an additional $2 million on each one. We're not anticipating on hitting that on all four of them. If we did though, um, trustee esteemed uh, to what uh, I already mentioned, it would be budget neutral because we would either be using it uh, to uh, being offset by either other um, projects that we have or by open positions if we're using it for backfill of positions. So uh, the $8 million we're not anticipating to spend and it would be split up between these four vendors. I just can't tell you which ones of the four vendors it uh, would be spent on at this point, which is why we're asking for a bump on all four. And again, either Kevin or I can add additional detail on that particular. I think this is my first time seeing a package of contracts bundled all together in this way or a package of vendors. Um, is this something that is typical where we might get this kind of yeah, I, I did. So, so Ira was. At, Ira and I talked actually on that, and I was. So, if, if I'm doing it in the in a way that you'd rather see it differently, I'll take a, I'll take point on that. I actually asked to have all four of them bundled together, and the reason I did is we were originally contemplating bringing just the two vendors that we know we're about to run over, on which um, and Kevin helped me or Ira on this. I think it's Elite Groups, and is it? I forget the other one. Um, it's either Oxford or. Superlinet. But anyway, we were going to bring forward just the two that we know we're about to bump over the million dollar threshold on. Um, but in tra full transparency, I'm not sure which, you know, over the next uh, few months, I'm not sure which ones we'll actually bump over on because we could end up awarding a lot more business to one of the other vendors in that. So I wanted to come forward with all four of the contracts so that the board was aware of how we're spending the money um, uh, over the you know, over the remainder of the year. This is a strategy that we've used over the last couple of years. And I will tell you, both Kevin and I have had experience with this in the past in both doing it this way, as well as using a single source strategy. We're seeing significantly lower rates by using this multi-vendor strategy than uh, I've seen in past lives in doing a single source strategy where you, you know you have a quasi partner, but you don't have the competition in there, which is why we like using the four vendor strategy with this. And all four vendors provide basically the same resources. It really just depends on you know, the, the people that they can get and the rates that they can get at a particular time. And sometimes one of the vendors seems to be doing better than another. And then another time, one of the others will be doing better um, with what they're offering. Okay, so just to make sure I understand this, it, the four vendors are vendors that we may contract individually with, not necessarily concurrently with. Correct. Okay, Correct. great. So I'll defer to the to the group trustees. How do you all feel about bundling the contract ask in this way? Trustee Esteen, if I may just add yeah. really quickly. So um, uh, because these contracts are so similar and, and this is really uh, to add money to the contracts, the contracts were already signed. Mm -hmm. So there isn't any change to language or anything like that. It's just to add money to each of these contracts. That's why we thought it would be easier for you all to see it. And, and they're the same services. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that's, that's uh, sort of the rationale there for for putting them together the way they are. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, trustees, do you guys have any questions or concerns about doing it this way? I don't. Great. I see head shaking. Great. Okay, we can move on to D3. Yeah, D3 is a contract with Premier Parking. It's a three-year year renewal. Um, 5.2 million. Um, we've been very pleased with Premier Parking. 
Um, they've stepped up to the plate when we needed help at our COVID stations, manning those COVID stations, et cetera. Um, and Trustee, Trustee Estine, I know how much you like break-even contracts. Well, this one is about break-even because we recoup um, revenue from parking fees, um, et cetera, that are charged. So, um, again, a three-year contract. And by the way, Ira Holly negotiated these, did a great job. So, Ira, if you feel that there's something pertinent that I've missed, please, please pipe in. D4 is um, with Morrison Health Food Health Company, or they provide our food services across our entire system. Um, the contract is a $23 million, $23.6 million contract over a three-year period. Um, we were able to negotiate a really reasonable contract here. Um, they've been with us since 2012. Um, we're saving about $1.2 million by way of uh, re redistributing leadership, if you will. Um, also, they've, they've guaranteed $210,000 worth of capital um, to us over the course of, of the um, agreement. So, um, we, you know, they've done, they've done a good job. Um, and you can see all of the different all of the renewal terms that are bulleted in there in terms of the services they would be providing us. Um, I don't know when you want to stop, Trustee Esteen. You said there was D4 questions, and I don't know if you want to stop here and have them asked or if you'd like me to go to the next one. Yeah, let's, if that's the explanation for D4, I would like to take the public comment. We have three people who are I'm sorry, Trustee, I was going to interrupt there. Uh, so, um, Mark, uh, we, we jumped to D5, I think. So, uh, we didn't do D3, which is the lease agreement. So, okay. I, I'm wondering okay. if you want to just, yeah. these Before are okay we... with D1, 2, 3, and 5, if you want to make a motion, just throwing it out there to approve that. And if it's just D4, you all want an okay. additional discussion about. Ahmad, could I ask Ira to have a few, say a few comments on the Morrison food contract, please? Sure, um, be happy to. Um, you pretty much summarized um, everything from what I understand, Mark. Um, we have a very good deal here. We have a three-year renewal ahead of us, and we have an established vendor um, whom it would be in all reality. It's very challenging to transition from one vendor to another when they are embedded in the way that these kinds of relationships are structured. So there is a substantial transaction cost to that if that were on the table. Um, in addition, we did get a very good deal going forward with $1.2 million in aggregate savings negotiated. Um, through the mechanisms that Mark was discussing. And so from that perspective, plus the fact that they have a proven ability from our perspective to supply and render the goods that we need, um, the decision was made that this was the best way to go forward. Um, I think that, you know, without going into too much detail, I think probably just addressing questions as they come would maybe be the best path forward. So, trustees, if you're okay with uh, making a vote on these first four contracts, we can then hear the final contract that has public comment and vote separately on that. If there's no objection to these other contracts, I'll take a motion. 
I'll move approval of uh, contracts one, two, three, and five. Second. <clears throat> All right. We'll take a roll call vote, Rana. Yes, for uh, D1, 2, 3, and 5, uh, Trustee Blue. Yes. Trustee Esteem. Yes. Trustee Fox. Yes. Trustee Friedman. Yes. Trustee Splendorio. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anything else that we need to hear about uh, contract D4, the Morrison contract, before taking public comment? I don't believe so. Um, Ira, do you, is there anything more? Um, I'm just looking over my notes. I think that that covers the critical elements and everything else is summarized in the summary ahead of everybody. Okay. Thank you all so much. The first public comment I have is from Gerald Hurd. Gerald, are you in the room tonight? If you are, you can unmute yourself. Yes. Yes. Good evening. I'm in the room. Thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, letting me do a presentation with uh, everyone. Uh, we do have concerns with the Morrison Group. Uh, we do understand that they've been in our department for eight plus years. Uh, they originated uh, because our department was in trouble with compliances uh, with the state, and we were in bad operational uh, needs as far as being uh, following regulations. So from our understanding at that point, Morrison uh, was a great company to uh, utilize as a plan of action to correct a lot of things in our department. So moving forward with that, we had this company in our, in our department to actually bring us back up to compliance. That was the origination of this company. Uh, we are now three into three contracts, it looks like, right now with this company. And we are actually, they started with our previous uh, two administrations when this uh, company was originated with us. Uh, it looks like from that point forward, uh, Morrison has them came in full circle as far as everything being ran through their company to run our department. But we have all kind of things that's going on that doesn't seem to be consistent the way our department should be ran, uh, apparently, to a lot of our staff. Um, basically, I'm a shop steward at Fairmont Campus. I've been with the uh, company for 13-plus years. And from what I've been seeing since my start date versus how we had regular administration running our department versus Morrison now, it's a major change. And it seems like we're hands off as far as Alameda Health System goes into our department period. And it looks like to where we don't gave Morrison so much uh, control of our department, it's going to cost you more at this point to try to bring our our department back within AHS guidelines as far as running it versus keeping it the same as far as continuing to re renew these contracts. And it seems like basically renewing your contract right now with Morrison seems to be more cost effective. And that's a concern for us right now. So 
uh, overall, we do have issues that probably needs to be more addressed as far as what we're doing right now with Morrison. It looks like long-term, it's not going to be our salute this company. Thank you very much, Mr. Hurd. Forgive me for not explaining in the beginning that uh, public comment will be limited to three minutes per speaker. The next speaker that we have is Craig Smith. Hi, good evening. Um, I just wanted to take this moment and thank the um, board um, for taking the comments this evening um, in congruent with the contract for Morrison. Um, I'm actually uh, one of the chefs over at Highland Hospital. I've been um, a vested employee with um, AHS for over 12 years. Um, I have been in the food and nutrition department prior to the contract with Morrison. And over the years, um, I've voiced um, a number of concerns in the structure of Morrison and the lack of um, the lack of empathy for the community and the employees of AHS. Um, I believe that there is a conflict with the overall mission statement of service of who we serve and where, we, where we're serving when it comes to employees, um, such as not just doctors, but other employees um, who partake in the cafe in the uh, at AHS, um, but it seems as though the Morrison's focus is, you know, with the contract with the doctors and providing food with the doctors. And my concern has always been uh, the doctors are not the only ones who need to be fed within the hospital. We have uh, staff, you know, who also we need to take concern of as well, who are also providing services to the community. Um, another concern that I have with Morrison is the lack of the lack of advancement of employment within AHS. I feel as though a lot of the growth has stunted, has been stunted with the third party entity within um, AHS. There is a lot of great, great craft and expertise and experience within aid within our food and nutrition department that. Um, do not have the opportunity to advance because there are separate agendas within the third party entity that we have in right now. Um, also, my third concern is the lack of responsibility that is put upon our own AHS staff, Dean Morrison. Um, I believe that if we had more of a direct, more of a direct. Yes, no problem. I believe that if we had more of a direct AHS director to go to to voice our concerns with uh, about Morrison, then we would be able to have more of a dialogue and relationship again with AHS that we have had in the past with food and nutrition. And again, thank you guys for um, taking the moment out to give us time to voice our concerns. Thank you very much. Um, the final person signed up for public comment is Wilson Buckley. Hi, hi, you guys. How are you doing? Thank you for taking the time to hear me right now. I'm going to keep mine short and sweet. I just want to talk about product quality with Morrison. Um, product quality and inventory, as I once heard. Um, the quality of the food we get is substandard. 
a lot of times it comes in, especially produce, is unusable, and we often throw it away. Um, as far as um, inventory, as far as inventory, we get a lot of inventory of things that we don't need. We have too much of what we don't need and not enough of what we actually use. Uh, Morrison employs a, a system called drop shipments where they ship stuff to all their accounts, whether we need it or not. AHS in turn pay for these, they pay for these items that we eventually end up throwing away. Um, like I said, I, I, if I had a choice, I would say not keep Morrison for these reasons there. Thank you all very much for your public comment. Your daily work and your feedback is greatly appreciated. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Fratsky or Mr. Holly, is there any? Um, you know, I, I really appreciate the comments. Sincerely, I do. And I've heard them and we're going to incrementally address them. And part of the way we're going to start addressing them is this is in this contract. And I'm not going to move into too much detail here, but leadership um, is important. And, you know, having somebody with um, the AHS acumen, if you will, um, will be an important incremental step that we need to um, begin to take. So, um, I just want to hold out hope to the speakers tonight that, you know, you've been heard. Our intent is to make incremental change um, and continue to listen to you um, over time as we move forward. Thank you for that. Trustees? Um. This is Ira. I would also like to say one clarifying comment. Um, we have had Morrison in place um, since 2012, as previously mentioned. We did attempt to take this out to RFP um, the prior time for the current contract in 2018. Um, when we did put that out for proposal, nobody responded except for Morrison. The um, feedback that we got from other of the major competitors was that they could not excel or even equal what was being offered, and they deferred to Morrison Central. Okay. Are there any questions from the trustees? Yeah, I have a question. It, has Morrison put into place any system for getting feedback from employees like we've heard tonight? And, uh, you know, is there a method for holding them uh, accountable for working with the employees to get their input into improving operations? Oh, so, Mark, it's a great question. And, um, you know, we need to have leadership that is responsive, that does listen, that seeks first to understand, that is transparent and authentic. Um, and that's our intention. I, I'll leave it at that. And if those systems aren't in place to 
for staff to be able to get feedback, we need to put them in place. Um, in a in a environment that whereas fear doesn't exist, it's easy for staff to escalate up problems and get fixes. Um, and that's our goal, and that's what we want to achieve. Thank you. Did I see another hand go up? Was that a mistake? All right, trustees, does anyone want to make a motion? I'm happy to make a motion to approve item four. I'll second it. All right, Ronna, we'll take a roll call vote. Trustee Blue. Yes. Trustee Esteen. Yes. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Friedman. Aye. Trustee Splendoria. Aye. The motion passes. Thank you. Thank you very much. We appreciate the time that all AHS staff take to attend these meetings and to give public comment and feedback. And as you heard from Mr. Fratsky, your feedback is welcome and improvements will continue. Thank you very much for your participation tonight. And trustees, we have hit the portion of our agenda where we can continue planning and tracking. Uh, Trustee Smondorio is keeping us on track with HR improvements for recruitment and retention. Are there any other items that you heard tonight or that you would like us to hear going forward? All right, I think everybody might be tired. It's after eight o'clock. This is a record long finance committee meeting. So on that note, this meeting is adjourned. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Have a great night.